With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I would be lying if I didn't say I didn't celebrate holidays, horror days, um, I'm not that quite codified yet. I still really, really love New Year's. Um, I really like birthdays. Like, I just, I love birthdays. And I really, really like Mother's Day and Father's Day. Um, and, like, those are the ones that I, like, still haven't let go. Um, and being that it's so close to Father's Day and, well, practically a few minutes away from it, but also some other things that have happened in my life, I've really been giving a lot of thought to the importance of men and the value of men, specifically black men. J.R. Gorham says his upbringing in the small farming community of Falkland, North Carolina, was full of hard lessons, and his sharecropper father was the one who did much of the teaching. It was a tough love approach that didn't leave room for self-pity or excuses. But for J.R., it turned out to be exactly what he needed. He went on to become the first black brigadier general in the North Carolina National Guard, and vice president of Kernersville branch of First Citizens Bank. To remember his father's lessons and legacy, he also became an author. He wrote a book called Sharecropper's Wisdom, and J.R. Gorham joins me in the studio now. General Gorham, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you, Frank. It's great to be here today. Tell us more about Falkland, North Carolina. Well, it's a little small town in eastern North Carolina, about 10 miles from Greenville, which is the county seat. Yeah. I tell folks all the time the population there is 117. 116 now that I live in Kernersville, North Carolina. <laughs> but it's a very uh, loving community. Uh, everybody knew everybody, and everybody kind of looked out for everybody. Uh, but it was kind of tough growing up in the 60s and 70s uh, in Falkland. Farming, yeah. the, farming the main business, right? Right. Being the son of a sharecropper, yeah. there was not a lot of resources there, so there was not much to do as far as the social side of things. But yeah. uh, we managed along okay and 
we all grew up just fine. Did father keep you pretty busy on the farm? All the time. Yeah. I mean, from sunup to sundown, he was a hard taskmaster. And uh, that's one of the main reasons why I joined the Army. I joined it for two reasons. One, to get away from my daddy. And the other one was to get away from that tobacco field. <laughs> <laughs> and, every, and and you talked about the community. I mean, everybody was out there sharing in, in the work, too, right? Yes. I mean, uh, that was the the thing that everybody did. Uh, our neighbors were sharecroppers. Everyone in our church basically was sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, helped each other out during times, uh, during hard times. The family uh, up the street from us, uh, when we went to school, we came home from school, took off our school clothes, and went to the pack house to tie tobacco. One night we would be at our tobacco uh, pack house, and the next night we would be in the neighbors up the street pack house. All the families coming together to help prepare the tobacco for market. So it was a really close-knit community, and uh, they didn't... Uh, take much to a lot of foolishness. It <laughs> <laughs> didn't seem like there's much time for it. Were you, I mean, at the time, were you thinking about how do I get out of here? I mean, talk about what you're thinking as a young man having to do all this. Yes, that was one of the things, another thing that caused me to join the United States Army. I wanted to try to figure out how could I lift myself from this uh, life of basic poverty and uh, how could I possibly negotiate this maze called life with with few resources. So I wanted a college education, and at that time, uh, it was at the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, there were benefits for uh, young people who would join the military. Uh, they could, uh, if you join in for two to three years, once you got out, you could take care, uh, take advantage of the uh, GI Bill and uh, go to school. And so uh, that's what I did. I joined the Army. Uh, I tell folks, one day I was barefooted, priming tobacco in my daddy tobacco field, and the next day I was at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. I had some boots on my feet. I slept in air conditioning for the very first time in my life, and I could drink all the milk I wanted. <laughs> I was in hog heaven, so I used my benefits then to come back to go to East Carolina University. Well, and from the sound of it and from reading your book, mm-hmm. and you love your father mm-hmm. deeply, mm-hmm. but it might be that that Army life and those barracks might have been easy on on you in terms of the the amount of work, and even even the, the level of abuse you, that you would have taken would have been less in the military than with your own dad. Oh, yes. Uh, when I went into the military, it was like a step up. <laughs> I mean, it's the best I'd ever lived. So it was... Uh, uh, a good experience for me, and I was used to following orders because, you know, if, if my father had to tell me to do something twice, uh, there was a licking coming behind yeah. that. <laughs> well, and he also instructed you in the ways, because this was, uh, again, at a time of, if not, uh, if, if legal segregation had ended, and I think you were talking about being, you know, living through the bridge uh, right. over that time. Yes. Your father taught you the hard way how to how to pay attention to those rules, right? Yeah, he understood the social norms of that time where being a young person, I didn't. And I, I recall one event where we had finished picking cucumbers and we, he, he took it to Oscar Snacks Bar there in Falkland. And uh, the social norm of the day was that uh, the whites sat to the front of the uh, grill and there was a bar at the back where African-Americans were served. So we went in to get an ice cream cone, and uh, some gentlemen stopped my father, and they engaged in a conversation, and I was tired and hot. So I decided that I would sit down in one of those chairs at the front of the store. And as soon as my bottom t- 
touched that chair. My daddy snatched me up and he said, boy, don't you ever sit in those seats again. Your place is back at the bar. He didn't do that as a uh, to degrade me or anything. He did it as a form of protecting his child because he understood the dorms and I did not. And so that was a tough lesson to learn, and I never forgot that. And all during my adolescence and even to my early uh, adulthood, I was trying to find my place because I didn't think it should be at the back of the bar, at the back of the store. Tell me what you make of that then, and we'll talk about, you know, moving forward to Mm -hmm. where you are now. Mm -hmm. Again, you understand now that this is about survival to your father. So we'll talk about social progress some other time, but, but right now. Right. You're in danger. Right. You understand that now. But, right. But this is also about a degrading situation that should not be. It's wrong. And where were you in that moment? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't understand it. Mm. But secondly, I was determined, right, mm-hmm. that uh, I was going to try the best I could to get to a point where mm. in my eyes and in my thoughts— that I qualified to be able to sit at the front of the store, not at the back. And so I kind of made that my life uh, uh, mission to uh, better myself, to try to make something of myself, but more importantly, to make my father proud of me. But that means you also understood at a certain level, and I'll put words in my mouth, so please correct me if I'm wrong, that you would have understood at a certain level that you as a black man would have to work harder, and that's going to be the rule of America, that if you're African-American... You're on an unlevel playing field, and right. you will have to work harder. Absolutely. And I also understood that, you know, even though you work hard, sometimes you don't get the proper recognition that we think that we deserve. Uh, when you see other folks moving along, and you don't seem to seem the same, same effort for them that you're putting forth, but you're not getting recognized for it, it is uh, sometimes very disheartening. And every time I would find myself in those types of situations, I would hear my father's voice. Boy, when you get to the end of your rope, you tie a knot and you hang on. Don't quit because it will eventually change. And his words were some of the things that kept me on the right path because of what he shared with me in that old raggedy smoking Silverado pickup truck that I was so ashamed of then, but I'm so proud of now. Everybody understands, of course, that the, the condition of slavery, as you just pointed out, is is the absence of consent. Nobody consents to be a slave. So when when we ask, you know, do slaves consent to go work in the fields? Well, of course not. That's the nature of slavery. And that's true across the board. It's not just about work. It's about any interaction with a master. Therefore, any sexual contact between a master and a slave is essentially a case of rape. Now, most people would agree with that, and we talk actually in in our history classes about how the white plantation owner would go into the slave quarters and rape women who were in that condition of slavery. But even though we'll say that in kind of a general way, that's very difficult for some people to recognize when it's applied to a specific white person, especially a revered white figure like Thomas Jefferson. So here's Thomas Jefferson, who's the author of the Declaration of Independence and our third president and, you know, this much revered figure. Somebody people have a lot of respect for, a lot invested in, 
their ideas about Thomas Jefferson. Yet, it's undoubtedly true that now, because of the DNA evidence and other forms of evidence, that we know that Thomas Jefferson had sexual relations with Sally Hemings, a woman he owned. That means, by definition, Thomas Jefferson raped Sally Hemings. So, now, even though the logic of that is, I think, beyond question, as you just pointed out, because Thomas Jefferson is such a, a heroic figure in American history for white people, white people often simply cannot accept that. So they'll talk about how he and Sally had a loving relationship and, and all of these attempts to gloss over the fact that, in fact, Thomas Jefferson owned her and that when she was, you know, submitted to sexual relationships with him, it was in that conditions of master and slave. Um, I don't know exactly why, but there's something about Thomas Jefferson and his status that, that when you make that claim, it, it drives white people crazy. Well, this was a big weekend at the Monticello Plantation outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. The estate of the former U.S. President Thomas Jefferson hosted a large gathering for a group of people with a close and complicated relationship to the place. It was a gathering for descendants of the men, women, and children who once toiled in bondage for a founding father of the United States. I'm David Fisher. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm 26. I'm Zach Fisher. I'm 25, also from Pittsburgh. Uh, we are sixth-generation descendants from uh, Jefferson and Sally Hemings through their son, Madison Hemings. What do you, what do you think of the exhibit? Uh, it's beautiful, honestly. It's uh, very uh, personal, i got to say. Uh, seeing our relatives and the uh, uh, family in there, it's, uh, it's very it's interesting. It just shows how far we've come. I remember coming here, and they were, they were just, they were, I think there were bathrooms before. They were just, they didn't know what they were, and now it's, it's something important. It's something special. Uh, it creates an intimate experience where you can actually catch a glimpse of, of what life may have been like back then. I almost cried yesterday. Just watching all the, uh, the um, what's it called, um, the pictures and the frames and the walls on there, the new exhibits. I was like, wow, this is a very, uh, yeah, it's really, I think it's sad, but it's, um, it's very uh, heartwarming and tear-jerking, you know. It's, it's very intimate and personal. And it's great to see the kids who are growing up here and coming in and already knowing their history, knowing that so yeah. many of these people here were laughed at when they were children or couldn't speak about it. Even you know? our mom, as a kid for herself, she told her um, her classmates, oh, I'm a from Jefferson to Hemings. They all laughed at her. I said, oh, no way. You're, you know, and she was you know, very fair-skinned black woman. You know, you're black. You're not sent from anybody. You're you know, nothing. And look at us now. It's like we have all this heritage right here in, in Virginia, you know. Um, my name is Calvin Jefferson, and I'm living down in Fluvanna County, down near, Charlotte, down near Monticello. I'm J.C. Jefferson, Jr. I live in Washington, D.C. We are descendants from three Mont Monticello families. The um, Hemings family, the Granger family, and the third family is um, Evans. I like the exhibits. I think what Mont Monticello has done is put together uh, the truth. And it's telling the truth from um, the enslaved person's point of view. We're really dealing with the contradictions and the complicity of how uh, America was founded. What I hope is that more Americans will come here and not just see, as um, Mr. Mr. Rubenstein said today, not just, not just thinking about this being the back of a nickel, right? But think about this as being a part of American legacy that was, that was complicated. And, and these stories that are coming out through the new exhibits add to the complexity of America. 
Well, there you go. Some visitors to Monticello this past weekend. There was a special gathering held for descendants of slaves of the U.S. founding father, Thomas Jefferson. Of course, the name of one former Monticello slave is known above all others in the world today, Sally Hemings. She gave birth to six children fathered by Thomas Jefferson. Many of the descendants were on hand this past weekend, and they were there to see the Monticello estate finally acknowledge Sally Hemings and her place in history with the unveiling of a new exhibit called The Life of Sally Hemings. Gail Jessup White has a strong bond to Monticello. She is a descendant of Thomas Jefferson. She is also related to the Hemings family. She is Monticello's community engagement officer, and Gail Jessup White is in Richmond, Virginia today. Hi. Good morning. How are you, Anna Maria? Did you have a great weekend there with this uh, this exhibit opening? I had one of the best weekends of my life. It was significant um, on so many levels. Um, not only because I work at Monticello, and it's a huge achievement for us, um, moving the um, uh, foundation in a, in a different direction, in a more inclusive direction, but we were also talking about my ancestors, my family, and it was a gathering of my family. 300 of us were there, 300 strong, and it was um, uh, my son was there, my nieces, uh, my brother, and so many cousins, including the voices you just heard. They're also my cousins. Mm. So it was um, really an extraordinary weekend. Um, the restoration of Sally Hemming's bedroom is, at, uh, is, is part of this exhibit. Let's start there. What's that room look like? So the room, as our curators have interpreted it, is, is not typical. It's not a recreation of, of, um, of that period. It is, in fact... Um, a space that's almost empty. When you walk in that room, you walk in a dark, dank, small space, windowless space. And what you'll see projected on the wall as you walk in are the words of Sally Hemings' son, Madison. You just heard Madison's descendants. And he describes um, his mother and his father (laughs) and what his life was like and what it was like for his siblings on the plantation. And then um, you also see projected on the screen, or on the wall, I should say, um, images, animated images that we hope convey a a feeling about Sally Hemings, um, about who she was. And then we also have a mannequin in the other corner, that also has on it projected images of who she was as a woman. And that is what we want people to understand as they see this new exhibit, that Sally Hemings wasn't just an appendage of Thomas Jefferson or a name that many people have known throughout history and have scandalized, but she was, in fact, a mother and a sister and a caregiver and a daughter and a seamstress and a world traveler. <laughs> Excuse me, I've been talking a lot this weekend. Mm. Well, and, and it's. Um, I, I, and she I, was also, and she was also inherited property. It's important to remember that as well. She inherited property. Um, <laughs> See, no, 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 no. She was inherited property. She was inherited. She was, she was inherited. Exactly. That's right. She In fact, she was. Property. She was a child, an infant, <clears throat> infant really, when she was transferred to the Jefferson Plantation as a slave. Was she not? She was. Her yeah. mother was Elizabeth Hemings and owned by Thomas Jefferson's father-in-law. 
Mm-hmm. And, and and that that brings us to uh, and I know there's more to the exhibit that goes beyond her room, but but here is this woman who who had six children fathered by the man who becomes the president of the United States, and her room you describe as dark, dank, small, no window. That's right. That's a reminder that she was owned by him. Well, she was enslaved. Yeah. And um, the children she had with him were enslaved until they were 21 years old. Um, That is also part of the explanation of the exhibit, a part of Madison's memoir, the words you'll see projected on the wall. In fact, when um, uh, Sally Hemings accompanied Thomas Jefferson's um, youngest daughter, Mariah, to Paris when he was ambassador there, and, um, and that's when their connection began. And Thomas Jefferson um, wanted Sally Hemings to come back to Virginia with him, and, but she was free in, um, in Europe, in Paris, in France, and so she demurred, according to her son. Um, however, <coughs> excuse me, she negotiated, Sally Hemings negotiated with one of the most influential men of his time um, in order to um, work out a, a bargain with him where she would return to the States um, one of one of the um, terms of that agreement was that their children would be free upon the age of 21, and that's exactly what happened. They had six children, four of whom survived into adulthood, and they were all freed. Two were allowed to walk away from the plantation. Two were were freed in his will. And so when you speak to African Americans and other Americans, but African Americans, let's talk about that right now, about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, what do they say when, when, when you fill in some more of the blanks of, of that story? How is it perceived? Well, what they say is, I didn't know. I didn't know that part. I didn't know that about her. I didn't know they had, um, that his, um, um, his first wife was her half-sister. And they say, after having seen this exhibit, we had some um, some people come to look at it before to, for a preview, and their response was stunning, courageous, informative. Thank you, thank you for telling us the truth. What they are want the, those blanks filled in? What are the misconceptions that you've been trying to clear up as well? Well, one of the misconceptions is, and I'll speak as a descendant now is that Sally Hemings, what their connection was. We're not clear on what their connection was. Some people think it was a love relationship. Some descendants believe it was. Many people believe because there was this huge power imbalance that she was raped. So what we want people to have are the facts as we know them, as much as we know. And the facts are based on her son's memoir, um, which were given to a newspaper reporter in 1873. He was a free man, of course, living at this point living in Ohio. And the facts were this. As I said earlier, she negotiated with one of the most influential men of his era, um, special privileges for herself, freedom for her children. And at the end of his life, she was given her time. She was not freed, but she was given her time, which means that she was allowed to live as a free woman. So it's important for people to know that for a brief period in time, Sally Hemings had her own agency. For a brief period of time, she decided the fate of her children. And that gave her children a leg up, so to speak, to use today's contemporary language, on other enslaved people 
they were freed years before the great war, the great civil war that freed four million enslaved people. So their family had a head start, mm. and she did that. And it's really important for people to understand who she was. And in fact, one of the best voices that I have from the Antelope captives is a 10-year-old boy who was being quizzed uh, on the docks in Baltimore about what happened. And he told how he and his sister, when he was eight years old, their parents had gone to some sort of meeting in their city, and they were playing in the yard, and men came over the fence into the yard and grabbed them, threw them over their shoulders, and ran away with them. And the next thing he knew... He was on a slave vessel bound for the Americas. Both he and his sister? Um, apparently his sister was separated from him. And that's, you know, that's the story of slavery writ large. Uh, you are unable to keep families together, unable to be with people. But uh, I, I just think about an 8-year-old boy. Uh, 41% of these captives were between the ages of 5 and 10. Oh. I mean, they're little children. This is a child abuse story in many ways. Thank you very much. Uh, we're signing an executive order. I consider it to be a very important executive order. It's about keeping families together. So we're going to have strong, very strong borders, but we're going to keep the families together. I didn't like the sight or the feeling of families being separated. Well, with an executive order pledging to, quote, detain alien families together, the U.S. President Donald Trump moved to quell some of the outrage yesterday. The backlash has been bipartisan and international as images of migrant children separated from their parents and housed in detention centers have circulated far and wide, including one particularly powerful image of a little girl in a red shirt apprehended by border agents and crying as her mother is searched. The migrant families separated at the southern U.S. border caught the world's attention this week, but it is hardly an historical first. There are other painful episodes, such as Japanese internment camps during the Second World War, Canada's residential schools, and the entire era of slavery. Nikki Taylor chairs the Department of History at Howard University. She's the author most recently of Driven Toward Madness, the fugitive slave Margaret Garner and Travis. Tragedy on the Ohio. Nikki Taylor is in Washington, D.C. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good morning. When you see images like the one taken by John Moore of kids held in detention centers or, or standing watching the little girl watching her mom being searched and crying, what, what historical images come to mind for you? The exact historical image that came to my mind about as soon as the story broke was that of the slave auction and how African-Americans were held in what was termed slave pens, which were holding facilities while they awaited uh, the auction. And so that forced separation of those families brought with it all manner of horrific trauma, psychological trauma to the children and to the parents, because there was no idea on, on the behalf of both parties of if or when they would ever be reconnected. What was the purpose of breaking up the family unit during slavery? The purpose, well, number one, the number one impetus was profit to sell the parents you know, to distant regions for profit, especially as slavery became less profitable in on the eastern seaboard. Another reason many enslaved people were separated from their families by sale was 
as a punishment for uh, recalcitrance or punishment for disobedience or any other form of resistance. And so the resisting enslaved person would be sold away from his or her family as a punishment. And in the same vein, the selling of that person could be a deterrent to others not to resist. And how did these these separations um, uh, impact the enslaved women, in particular the mothers? Well, it was horrific to watch children that you had given birth to uh, be sold away from you, never to be seen again. This was damaging. Uh, The woman that uh, is the subject of my latest book, uh, that may have been one of the things that drove her and her family to escape slavery, was the fear of one of the, her family members being sold away. It might even been herself. And so that, that drove people to all kinds of desperate uh, responses at times, even the thought of being separated from their loved ones. Do you see a parallel between the language we hear today coming out of the, the Trump administration, the White House, when, with, in reference to migrants and how the government would refer to enslaved African-Americans in the 19th century? Not so much the government's reference, but uh, individual slaveholders' reference and individual anti-Black people's reference. One of the parallels that comes to mind um, in terms of the rhetoric is in the 1830s and 40s in urban centers in the North, as fugitive slaves escaped and tried to make their way to these northern cities, in particular cities like New York, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Uh, There was a level of hysteria among the whites in those cities, and they talked about the Africanization of the city and how these immigrants would bring crime and they would bring disease, and they were essentially criminalizing people who simply wanted to be free. And so I see the same parallels with the migrants and how uh, Trump and his administration are Uh, the the discourse that they've created whereby refugees have been criminalized. I think it's abhorrent and unconscionable. And, but so you're connecting the dots. You're saying that, that, that the separation of children from their, their parents is deliberate and political as a way to control people. Well, I'm not saying that per se. I'm just giving you historical examples of the rhetoric that, uh, you know, in African-American history, but yes, Personally, I do think it's deliberate and political and designed to deter people from seeking the U.S. as that beacon of liberty that it always has been. Okay. Nikki Taylor, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Nikki Taylor, chair of the Department of History at Howard University. She joined us from Washington, D.C. Well, what's been happening to migrant children in America is resonating with many indigenous people here in Canada. From residential schools to the 60s scoop to the current overrepresentation of indigenous children in the foster care system, my next guest says we cannot ignore the parallels, especially with news coming out of Quebec today. Nagusset is the executive director of the Native Women's Shelter in Montreal and a survivor of the 60s scoop. She joins us from our Montreal studio. Hello. Hi. Happy Aboriginal Day. Oh, well, thank you. And to you, um, as, as someone who has been through the experience of being separated from your own family, what have you been thinking watching the coverage of these children detained on the Mexico-U.S. border? I think that this is history repeating itself. I was watching something this morning on the news, and they showed um, a cage of people 
And it reminded me of how the government forced us onto reservations. So that was our cage. We weren't allowed to leave the reservations. We had authorities, Indian agents that would watch over us and make sure we did not leave. And this is what is currently happening now in the States. Can you tell us a bit about your own experience? Um, well, I'm part of the 60s scoop, so that was uh, a government uh, initiative to assimilate Indigenous children into white families through adoption. And um, I was uh, photographed and put into a program called AIM, Adopt an Indian or Métis Program. And um, basically, they took a picture of me when I was living in uh, Thompson, Manitoba, when I was about three years old, and I was kind of cute, like adoptable, and sent it over to Montreal to Jewish Family Services. And my parents had a huge catalog of only Indigenous children. And uh, they chose my picture, and I was suddenly taken away. And the thing is that my sister was in foster care with me, so she woke up to me being gone, and that changed her life because she was six at the time and she spent the rest of her life looking for me. It deeply impacted her, deeply impacted me. So it was, um, and, and, you know, 20,000 of us, this is what happened to the 60 Scoop. Mm. And uh, that the, the, you see what's going on now through the prism of that. I want to ask you very specifically about um, something in the news right now. Um, Quebec had had a policy of... Um, when children were medevaced out of northern communities that their parents were not allowed to go with them um, or even one parent. And they uh, they agreed to change that policy. But now um, the health minister, Gaetan Barrett, um, has angered Indigenous leaders because of what he has said. Um, he has um, said that parents in remote northern villages could still be barred from accompanying a child on a medevac, medevac flight because, and I'm quoting here, because no one agitated, drugged, or under whatever influence would get on the plane at any cost. That will not happen, and that happens all the time. How do you respond to that? My goodness. It is absolutely um disgusting that he could say such a thing. This is someone who's in a leadership position that is painting uh, the Inuit people as drunks. And this is what currently people think about Indigenous people and Inuit. I work in Montreal. We are working so hard with the population and working with different levels of, you know, government, youth protection to try to change that perception. There are people in Montreal that won't rent to the Inuit because they think they're all drunks. And that is not true. So for him to say that, he is solidifying that thought. And that is really, really damaging. And I think everyone should be outraged, not just Indigenous people. How dare you? How can you paint a picture of a whole population? And do you understand the history of the Inuit and, you know, what the government did to the people? They they struggle. I mean, Indigenous people, we all struggle, but that is not helping us. And he should he should apologize. He should step down. He should be accountable to his behavior. Uh, the, you know, this this incident with um, the Quebec minister is playing out against uh, world outrage on what's going on in the United States with the way children are taken. What, what do Canadians need to think about as we watch that unfold? 
I'm sorry, you're referring to the, the states. Yeah, the, the states. Well, yeah. So the, we've got this going on here, but everybody's been focused on the states. What do we need to remember about our, what's going on in our own backyard? Well, exactly. It is you know the idea that you know when uh, the Inuit population is in crisis and they have to take this air ambulance and they have to leave their children. The child is flown over here to Montreal. Sometimes they don't make it and they're not with their family or they get to the hospital and they cry and they're crying and they're, they're speaking in their own language and they have to get an interpreter and the interpreter's like, why is this child crying? Well, I want my mommy. And this has been going on for decades. It's only now that because of media that there's going to be a change. But I think we need to keep pushing that change. And this... Mr. Barrett needs to be accountable to his behavior and a huge apology. And he, my goodness. Okay, yeah. well, Nagusat, um, thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. Nagusat is the executive director of the Native Women's Shelter in Montreal. She's a survivor of the 60s scoop. She joined us uh, in our Montreal studio. I watched a white riot in Portland, Oregon on television the other night. <laughs> News said they did a million dollars worth of damage. Every black person was watching that like amateurs. Portland, Oregon is known as a hub of liberal and progressive thought. It's also one of the most gentrified cities in the country. Now, an ambitious new program, which some experts are calling the first of its kind, aims to atone for the repeated displacement of thousands of African-American families from north and northeast Portland. In a city with soaring home prices and a steady pattern of gentrification, can it make a difference? Amna Navaz and producer Mike Fritz recently traveled to Portland to see firsthand how it's all playing out. For Giovanni Battles and Ashley Rollins, this part of Portland has always felt like home. You're just surrounded by family. Oh, that's up it, then. man. Everybody knew somebody. You would drive by my grandma's any day. It would be five, ten people, cousins, everybody out there. You just stop and turn into an impromptu barbecue. Ashley was raised by her mother and grandparents, trailblazers in their time. She was the first woman, African-American woman judge in Portland. And then my grandfather, he was actually a Tuskegee Airman. Ashley and Giovanni's roots here may run deep. But when the former high school sweethearts looked for a place to raise their sons, the neighborhood they once called home was out of reach. We went to high school in this neighborhood. This is what feels like home and comfortable for us. So our hope was to live here, but, you know, things have just, like, changed drastically. That change traces back to the displacement of thousands of African-American families from north and northeast Portland since the 1960s, forced out by waves of city development and gentrification. Portland's policies that led to that exodus are deeply rooted in the state's past, according to Walida Imarisha, who studies Oregon's racial history. The Oregon Territory passed laws like the Black Exclusion Law in 1844 that outlawed black people from living in Oregon. It also included the Lash Law that said black people would be publicly whipped every six months, up to 39 lashes, until they left the state. The few who stayed in Portland were mostly relegated to the North and Northeast. By 1960, home to more than 80% of the city's black population. For years, the area saw little to no investment, ignored by lenders and developers property values plummeted. But by the 1970s, a series of city projects, including a basketball arena, a new highway, and a proposed hospital expansion, took over huge sections of land, raising hundreds of houses in the way. 
private money poured in. So did new homeowners who could afford to live here. Many existing residents were priced out. Fast forward, and the neighborhood that was 68% black in 1990 was just 28% black by 2010. When folks say, well, why aren't there more black people in Oregon? Why aren't there more communities of color in Oregon? It's important to recognize that's the foundation of it. Today, just 6% of all Portland residents are black, and the average home price in North and Northeast Portland is more than $500,000. Do you want to read Shades of Black? But to Ashley and Giovanni's surprise, the same city that played a role in driving out so many of their friends and family now stepped in to help them buy their first home through a preference policy that's been dubbed by many as a right to return. I think acknowledging a wrong is done is the first step, and I want to thank them for the opportunity that we took advantage of. Started in 2015, the program set aside $20 million for current and former residents of North and Northeast Portland, offering down payment assistance to 65 new homeowners, more affordable rental units, and home improvement loans to help residents stay in the area. Families who could prove their grandparents or parents were displaced from these neighborhoods got priority. But not everyone wants to return. I've never walked from 15 to 17 since we left out of this neighborhood. This is my first time ever walking this far. These two blocks? These two blocks. I mean, I don't feel welcome here. Jermaine Flentroy grew up on this northeast Portland block. He left in 2001 as his family's rent spiked and the neighborhood began changing. Back then, white people wouldn't come in this neighborhood. Right? They would not come in this neighborhood at all. And all of a sudden, you just start seeing, like, the hipsters, right? And that's what we didn't really get a thing. And then all of a sudden, we started seeing community gardens. And it was like, what are these people doing? Why are they so weird? Today, he qualifies for the city's Right to Return program. But the area, he says, is no longer home. There's nothing here for me. When they have this program, Right to Return, I still don't understand what, it is, what we're returning to. I talk to people every single day that want to move back into Northeast Portland. Leslie Goodlow is the Portland Housing Bureau's equity and business operations manager. They want to live in the same neighborhood that their grandmother lived in. They want to live in the same neighborhood that their church is still in. They want to live in the same neighborhood where their barbershop or their beauty salon still is. But three years into a five-year plan, Portland's Right to Return program is not hitting its marks. A thousand people applied to buy homes. The city's goal was to fill 65 slots. To date, they've only moved in six new homeowners. <laughs> Those numbers led Portland's mayor to call the program an abject failure. Getting a mortgage is not easy. And if you're only making, you know, $40,000 a year, you can't afford, you know, a two hundred dollars or $300,000 mortgage. How did you not know that the same people that had been disenfranchised for so long and moved to the bottom of the priority list for so long wouldn't immediately be available and ready to make that kind of leap? So some people could get ready in six months and some people might take three years. And do we hold a slot for somebody that's three years out or do we move somebody else up? And so that's been the struggle. Meanwhile, home prices in Portland continue to rise. Property values over the course of the last 10 to 15 years are up somewhere in the range of four, five, six hundred percent. Which is why Maxine Fitzpatrick says these rental units could offer the city some success. Her nonprofit is working with Portland to build more low-income rentals as part of the Right to Return program. Our 
whole thinking around rental property is that it allows them an opportunity to stabilize so they don't have to worry about being uprooted, you know, at the given will of the landlord. But experts say the key to building wealth is owning a home, and that's where the program is failing. The program very much needs to be retooled and rebooted to face the realities of the market. Portland State University's Lisa Bates examined the Right to Return program earlier this year, and she gives the city credit for putting it in place. But whether or not it makes a difference, she says, is something the rest of the country will be watching. Similar efforts to bring back families with ties to gentrified neighborhoods are now underway in New York, Philadelphia, Austin, and San Francisco. When it comes to a history of racial segregation, of exclusion, of sort of containment of the African-American community into a very small neighborhood, followed by the dispersal of those same exact black families um, with gentrification, it's extremely typical. This is a very basic story of urban history and urban planning in pretty much every city in the country. That's a history Cornelia Swart has spent years documenting. Portland was ranked as the most gentrified city in America. His new film, Priced Out, tracks the dramatic change in Northeast Portland. He first moved here in the 1990s. We've spoken to folks who said that when the neighborhood first started to gentrify, that first wave of which I was a part of, folks were conscious that it was a black neighborhood. Now, the last five or six years, there's been this erasure of history. People move in here and they don't even know it used to be a black neighborhood. This was my grandmother's house, right? Just across the street Just there? across the street. This is where my predominant, my main family grew up. For Jermaine Flentroy, walking these streets today is a reminder of everything he had to leave behind. We feel like this is stolen from us. Like, we, we feel angry about it. At least me personally, I feel angry about this. There's no way to make it right. You know, we're talking about the community that was um, basically bulldozed and we're going to be able to probably bring back maybe 2,000 families, uh, if we're lucky. Some people will say Portland had an image problem it was trying to fix. Is that well, fair? Well, that's probably some of it, but it is a way for the city to demonstrate we recognize what we did, we want to try to do something. Get up. The neighborhood isn't what they remember, but Giovanni and Ashley say they're now focused on making new memories. The best feeling is knowing that we set a foundation for our kids. You know, owning a home is the first step into stepping up in up economic class. And so that's the, honestly, the best feeling I have is knowing that my kids have something. A first step towards a future still firmly rooted in their past. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Amna Nawaz in Portland. Is that a real gun? Yeah, yes, it's a real gun. Do you kill people? No, if some guy's hurting someone. I try to shoot him in the leg or something, just to stop him. Mama says police shoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? Gloria, marked by most accounts, Charlena Lyle suffered from mental illness. And while parties will argue over whether this police shooting was justified, they seem to agree that Lyle's did not get the help she desperately needed. Her family believes changing the system will be her legacy. At the Hillcrest Cemetery in Kent, four siblings came to pay tribute to their mom. The peaceful sunny day, a sharp contrast to the violence that took her life. A year ago today.
Charlena Lyles, a pregnant mother, was shot and killed by two Seattle police officers responding to a burglary call at her home. They claimed the 30-year-old woman with a history of mental illness suddenly pulled a knife on them. Three of her kids, including two-year-old Deontay and five-year-old Zalea, were in the apartment at the time of the shooting. Her family reflects on the past year. Because today's special, one year, you know. Uh, her cousins, Tanya Isabel and Katrina Johnson. I know she's happy right now. All her kids are together. And um, we, have to, we have to make this good for her. Her cousins have followed through on that promise. Isabel finally obtained custody of all of Charlena's children. They've spoken out on the importance of crisis intervention for the mentally ill. And this spring, Charlena, what we did this for you, baby. Supporters of police accountability reform reached a compromise with lawmakers and law enforcement on new legislation. And while it still needs to overcome a legal hurdle, we will have police accountability in the state of Washington, and she will be looking down on us, saying, "Job well done." As for Charlena's children, her cousins believe they'll deal with what they saw and who they lost in their own time. Three of them were there. And they're going to remember one day. So we have to make sure that, that it's heard and understood that her, her life wasn't lost in vain. Charlena's cousins want her kids to grow up happy and productive, and they're determined to make sure that happens. The inquest into her shooting has been placed on hold while the county executive works to reform the inquest process. Lori Mark, back to you. That's right. We move into Mississippi, and you know how that spelled. M I crooked letter crooked letter I crooked letter crooked letter I hook back hook back a Mississippi man has a rare distinction. He's been put on trial for the same crime six times. One, two, three, four, five, six. Again and again, he was convicted of murder. Again and again, the conviction was thrown out, and then he was tried again. The story of Curtis Flowers drew the attention of Madeline Barron, who made his story the focus of the podcast In the Dark from APM Reports. He was 26 years old when the crimes happened. He had a girlfriend. He was living with her and her children. He sung in a gospel group with his father. And he did work at the furniture store. So the prosecution's case is built on this idea that Curtis Flowers worked at this furniture store, Tardy Furniture. And he was let go. And he was so angry by that that about two weeks later, he woke up early, he walked across town, stole a gun from a car, walked over to Tardy Furniture and killed everybody inside. It seemed like a strong case, at least to the juries that found Curtis Flowers guilty. But the Mississippi Supreme Court repeatedly found problems with the prosecution, and that's how the convictions were overturned again and again. Curtis Flowers is black. Nearly all the jurors who judged him were white, even though it was a racially mixed community. Reporters for the podcast found that to be a pattern in Winona, Mississippi. Here's data reporter Will Craft. We found race data for jurors in 225 trials, and we found that there, over a 26-year period, there was a history of removing black potential jurors at a much higher rate than white potential jurors. Black residents were struck from sitting on juries thrown out by the prosecution four and a half times more often than white residents. Reporter Madeline Barron found other flaws in the case. The interesting thing about that theory is that Curtis Flowers only worked at that store for three days, a total of 18 hours. And so there's, you know, a question as to whether or not in that time period you could really become that angry to commit a quadruple murder. 
I can hear why you'd be skeptical about that story, but didn't prosecutors produce people that Curtis Flowers shared cells with in, in prison who said that he confessed to the crime? Right. So this case is built on mostly circumstantial evidence with the exception of these jailhouse informants. When Curtis was arrested, he's put in this jail cell. And what ends up happening is that two people in that jail cell end up testifying at trial in the first trial that Curtis Flowers confessed to them. Interestingly enough, both of those men later said that story is not true. Both of them said they were motivated by getting out of jail, getting reduced sentences. And when both of those informants went away after the first trial, the DA, Doug Evans, found a new person, um, a man named Odell Hallman, who now said, well, Curtis actually confessed to me, too. And so that has been the only piece of direct evidence against Curtis Flowers for the past several trials. And, And we reached Odell in prison, and he told us that actually he made up that story, that that story was not true. For him telling me he killed some people, hell no, he never told me that. That was a lie. He testified in four trials, the last four trials, including the current trial, the sixth trial that resulted in the death sentence, putting Curtis on death row. What about Doug Evans, the district attorney? When you met him, as you finally did, uh, what did it feel like? Well, I was just hoping that he would talk to us at all because he really has not said almost anything about this case, even though it's been going on for more than 20 years. So I was grateful that he did talk to me for ended up being just about 11 minutes. And I guess to me, one of the things that was striking was that he both on the one hand said he was certain that Curtis was guilty. On the other hand, when I asked him, you know, are your witnesses, do you believe all your witnesses are telling the truth? which seems like a very basic question, he would not answer it. Hmm. And he kept wanting to talk off the record. And he said things like, you know, people down here tend to not ask these kinds of questions. So I think the picture that was painted for me in this interview was he has not really had to explain his actions in these trials very often, if ever, before. When I listen to his voice, he sounds mild. He sounds polite, Mm -hmm. a little bit annoyed, but he doesn't sound like an evil person, just listening to the tone of voice. Yeah. And I mean, for us, you know, as reporters, it's what's important is what the actions are of the people that we're reporting on. So when you look at our um, jury analysis, where he's striking black people off his jury at a rate four and a half times the rate of white potential jurors, you know, to us, that's more significant than how, you know, than really any demeanor questions. I mean, it was interesting. Also, he had a casual air about him. He wasn't, you know, confrontational. He wasn't angry. But what he was doing in the interview was just sort of casually accusing the jurors of lying to get on the jury, the ones that didn't vote to convict Curtis because there have been two mistrials. Any juror that I have heard except the ones that were lying to get on the jury, I haven't seen one yet that tried to say in any way that the evidence was not strong. So the tone was casual, but yet what he was saying was actually quite serious. So having spent a lot of time in a relatively small Mississippi town investigating a controversial subject like this, how have people received you and what have you heard from anyone you met since the podcast has started coming out? So it really depended. We were received very warmly in some cases and very much not in others. I mean, the town is very racially divided on the issue of whether Curtis Flowers is guilty or whether the prosecutor has done the right thing. So, you know, amongst black residents of Winona, we were very much, by and large, welcomed. Amongst white residents of Winona, some were welcoming and interested in what we had to do. Others, definitely not. So it really depended. It broke down 
largely on racial lines, not entirely, though. Have you become, in a way, advocacy journalists? You're trying to get this man out of prison, Curtis Flowers? I don't think that's our goal. I mean, that's something that Curtis and his lawyers are trying to do. For us as reporters, we're here to look at the people in power and look at the systems in place that raise questions about whether or not the criminal justice system is fair, whether it is just using facts. So what that results in is not our place to say, but certainly in this case, what we've shown is that the evidence against Curtis Flowers is weak. So this becomes a question now for the courts. Another segment on resigning versus termination when you talk about law enforcement. When law enforcement resigns, just like you always say, Gus, white people always get transferred. When you resign from a job, especially if you're in a, a job where you work for like a county or the city, when you resign, you get your you get your pension and your retirement still versus being terminated. Because that's something I learned because as a background investigator, I also work with internal investigations and we kind of talk about stuff. So, for example, after I do 25 years, I can get 100% medical retirement. But if I do something wrong and I'm under investigation and they terminate me, I will not get that. I will not get my medical. And then they also have a matching program where my job, they match like 3%. Um, they put 3% into your um, 401k, your retirement, and then you can just put whatever else you want into it up to 6%. So, like, if I get terminated, that 3% that they've been putting in with interest, they'll take out. And that that's kind of like a difference. So when you see all these um, race soldier um, law enforcement officials resigning, they're actually getting – they're more than likely, like anything else, they're letting them resign so they can keep their, their little retirement stuff there that they're getting instead of terminating, where I see a lot of black – black officers or whatever, they get terminated. Prospects police chief is condemning the racist, graphic Facebook messages coming from his former right-hand man. WDRB's Katrina Helmer reports the chief says he was ready to have Todd Shaw fired. Katrina. Prospects police chief says the offensive Facebook messages are disgusting and do not represent the entire police department. If black, shoot them. Those are the words of a former police officer. The entire thing is upsetting. Prospect Police Chief Jeff Sherrard says the racist graphic Facebook messages coming from his former assistant police chief Todd Shaw are unforgivable and unacceptable. The general public has learned about this since Friday. Uh, this has been eaten away at me since August 31st. That's when the Jefferson County Attorney's Office informed Prospect's mayor and police chief about the messages, which were uncovered during a different criminal investigation. The next morning, Shaw was suspended with pay. Why was he not fired right away? Because we had to conduct an investigation. According to Kentucky law, Chief Sherrard had to follow a process before taking action. First, an investigation. The chief says he could not rely only on the quotes referenced in the county attorney's letter. He had to sort through Shaw's entire Facebook history. And it was a tremendous amount of information. Uh, and it took a great deal of time to sort through it. It was literally thousands and thousands of pages of information. When the chief finally found those racist messages in question... I was shocked, saddened, and sickened. Next in the process, an interview with Shaw. Finally, the chief would send his final report and recommendation for discipline. Obviously, in this case, uh, termination, that would have recommended termination to the mayor. But before Sherrard could make that recommendation, Shaw resigned on November 20th. 
I have nothing to say to Todd Shaw. The chief says none of the racist Facebook messages from Shaw ever involved any other prospect police officers, but still, Sherrard says his officers are paying for it. They're being ostracized and alienated by everyone as well, and they, they've done nothing wrong. This was solely the actions of one person. Todd Shaw was not going to be able to collect retirement from Prospect Police, but he is from LMPD. Reporting live, I'm Katrina Helmer, WDRB News. The mayor of Edwardsville is apologizing tonight after a photo of him wearing blackface at a Halloween party surfaced. Here is the photo. Mayor Hal Patton says this is from a party 10 years ago. Patton is running for state senate in Illinois. He says he was dressed as a rapper for the party. Patton released this statement saying, in part, looking back, it was a bad choice for an outfit. I regret it and apologize to those it offends. He goes on to say, I never imagined it would be viewed as a racial image, much less saved by someone for nearly nine years before using it to impugn my character. Carry me back to old Virginia. There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow. There's where the birds warble sweet in the springtime. There's where the old darkest heart am long to go. There's where I labored so hard for old Massa. Day after day in a field of yellow corn. No place on earth do I love more sincerely than old Virginia, the state where I was born. The Richmond School Board voted this week to remove the name of Confederate General Jeb Stewart from a local elementary school and rename it for Barack Obama. Damn you, Obama. The vote was six to one. Kenya Gibson was the one vote against and joins us now from the studios of WCVE in Richmond. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So why did you vote against it? You know, it's I guess it's kind of surreal to think about. I'm a proud Democrat. Um Ultimately, I voted against the proposal because I felt uh, a loss that we didn't consider any local folks as we were faced with voting for um, the name of the school. Hmm. Did you have uh, any local figures in Richmond history in mind? Well, gosh, there's plenty of those. Um, there, A lot of names came to mind. Uh, we've got you know Oliver Hill, who lived in uh, in the North Side. He's a well-known civil rights attorney. He fought for equal pay for black teachers. He ensured that black students had transportation to school. Um, one that came to mind for me was uh, Albert Norrell. He uh, was actually one of the first African American principals in Richmond. I think 
that was back in um, 18, 1883 or something like that. And uh, a school was actually named after him in 1950, just uh, not even a mile away from Jeb Stewart. And um, that elementary school is now closed. And so keeping the name alive has a certain poignance to it. So it sounds like you were thinking, um, bless him, President Obama will have schools and highways and airports all over the country named after him. This might be the one chance that people important in Richmond history have that honor. The thing that's really special about Richmond is that this is a place about history. And so, yes, I mean, to your point, there will be many opportunities to honor our former president. But I thought, you know, in in this instance, I mean, this is a school. And so um, the students were actually charged with selecting a name. So when they uh, narrowed it down to three, and there wasn't a local name among that list, to me, it kind of highlighted the fact that we had failed our students somehow, you know, I mean, if if they didn't appreciate some of the local stories that um, that really we as adults hadn't done our homework. And so I believe that just as we, we kind of teach kids that, um, that they can make a difference, we want to teach kids about other people that they could have known that made a difference. I wonder if it wasn't for the changes that some brave people in Richmond brought about. Um, well, do you feel that they in one way or another, contributed to history rotating to the point where Barack Obama was elected? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the folks on, on our city council right now said very poignantly, you know, without an Oliver Hill, there wouldn't have been an Obama. Well, sounds like even Barack Obama might agree with a lot of what you say. Gosh, I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Kenya Gibson from Richmond, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. And no, I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. CTV's Miranda Anthesol is live at the Etobicoke School for the Arts, where there are allegations of racial profiling being made against the school's principal. Miranda. Well, Michelle, Peggy Aitchison is at the center of the controversy over allegedly identifying black students and compiling lists with their names on it without their consent to give to their teachers, assuming that there were gaps in opportunity and achievement for these specific students. This has real emotional effects on people of color. Noah Brown is just 18 years old, but he's questioning the behavior of someone much older, his principal at the Etobicoke School of the Arts. She categorized black students based on race. It was in November that Peggy Aitchison compiled lists of black students allegedly by going through the school's yearbook. She explains in a letter to students, staff and parents that with an objective of supporting success for all students, particularly those for whom we know as a group there are gaps, I shared a list of black students with our teaching staff. I recognize that this was a limited, flawed and ultimately inappropriate approach to identifying gaps and supports. And so that very same day, I retracted that compilation that was based solely on perceptions. We reached out to Aitchison, who is at the school today, but she never got back to us. Now, in her letter, she said she apologized to students, but for many, it's not enough. Noah's more than just a black student. Brown's father, George, has a legal service company and is now filing a human rights claim against Aitchison and the TDSB. I think um, uh, the explanation for uh, creating this list uh, doesn't make any sense because... Uh, most, if not all, of the students are overachievers. 
So the idea that, uh, that the list was created in order to determine whether black students are, are underachieving or not living up to or receiving the benefits of, of uh, what um, ESA has to offer doesn't make any sense. It really diminished uh, what I've built as an as a accomplishing student. Um, yeah, and I, it just made me feel as if though I was just a category. The TDSB has confirmed that HSN will not officiate the school's graduation ceremony next week. In a letter to staff, student, and parents today, it said it made the decision based on honoring the voices of the students. Reporting live, I'm Miranda Anthesley. Medical apartheid. The dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. Caught on camera pulling a patient, even laughing at him. Only on five, Maria Medina on what that patient and his dad say was an emergency room nightmare. Yeah, sit up. Sit up. It's a trip to the ER Samuel Bardwell says he'll never understand. I can't get up. Because he needs to sit up and he won't She's let me. She's literally yanking my arm. A doctor his dad captured on his cell phone camera putting her hands on Samuel, laughing at him. I cannot inhale. <laughs> he can't inhale. Wow. He must be dead. Are you dead, sir? and even cussing several times. I was just confused. Samuel says he was rushed by ambulance to El Camino Hospital in Las Gadas after collapsing during basketball practice on Monday. He couldn't speak, he was numb, and in a lot of pain. Samuel says he suffers from debilitating anxiety attacks. This was the worst one yet. It's just heartbreaking, you know, because he I've seen him go in and out of consciousness. His father, Donald Bardwell, raced to his son's side. But then they say they waited while the doctor, they claim, joked and laughed with the nurses. Waiting and waiting, and then the nurses would come in, and they would say, it's going to be a few more minutes. More than three hours after arriving, Dr. Beth Keegstra finally showed up at his bedside, but with a security guard in tow. I was just like, I, why would there be security when I had done nothing wrong? That's when Samuel asked his father to get his cell phone ready, and they captured this. I'm sorry, sir, you were the least sick of all the people who are here who are dying. <laughs> you want us to wheel you to your house in the gurney? He's obviously a doctor. I have to ask you that. Ask you this. At any point, did you raise your voice? Did you become aggressive? Did you say anything to her that would frustrate her? No. <laughs> I was completely calm the whole time. A spokesperson for El Camino told KPIX5 in a statement, we are saddened and disappointed by the physician's unprofessional interaction with the patient in the video. The physician is a contracted provider and has been removed from our ER schedule. I think she needs to be, to be terminated on top of the hospital needs to be, like, investigated. Samuel and his father think that the doctor believed they were there just for narcotics, but he was eventually treated for dehydration, given fluids, anti-anxiety, and pain reliever medicine. In Las Gatas, Maria Medina, KPIX 5. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 23rd, 2018. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, anything you want to share about the news clips that we just heard or counter-racist suggestions, the number 
715-364-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641 715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. List of things to do before we get to the callers. First up, uh, about... I believe it's been two years, about two years ago, at roughly the same time, I had a cow's listener and I had a poet, Danny Queen, who's been a guest on this program. He, for years, uh, recorded the lectures at Dr. Welsing's Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's been a guest, you know, talked about his archives. So in 2016, within about a month or so of each other, I had a listener and Mr. Queen, they both were extraordinarily kind, generous. They mailed me uh, stacks of audio from the Welsing Institute, from some of it, you know, 25 years old, like really old stuff, but I mean just racks of it. So it's hours and hours and hours uh, of lectures from the Welsing Institute and Mr. Fuller is on a lot of them, just, you know, really uh, priceless material, again, that I'm so glad they shared uh, since uh, this is not, my material, right? These are not my archives. This is all from the Welsing Institute. I can't really uh, share and just duplicate. So getting that uh, stated uh, before I move forward. Uh, so folks are not asking, you know, you could upload them or email. No, because these are not my archives and I don't want to have anyone uh, chide me for sharing material that I did not have permission to uh, share. However, I was listening, and I mean, it's so much material, I still haven't listened to it all. I mean, it's it's hours and hours and hours of material. It would take a long time to go through it. So I've been trying to go through it, and I would just load some of the audio to my iPod, and I would just listen as I'm out and about doing my thing on the plantation. And years ago, I heard Mr. Fuller say, uh, he was talking about the word brother. And he said he did not like the word brother. And he was talking to a group of people and he said, I don't like anybody in here. <laughs> I said, wow, like I was cracking up laughing. That's it. I said, wow, that sounds like somebody I know well. Uh, dare I say that sounds like a curmudgeon type attitude uh, to take, although very much based on logic. And I could not find where I heard that because I was walking and I wasn't looking to see exactly what the date and time was. And I just... Uh, had just like grabbed uh, like, I don't know, seven, eight uh, different recordings and just put them on a playlist and was listening. So I didn't really pay attention and it was difficult to try to go through because he said this and then moved on and all of that. So it took me two years to be able to go back and find the audio, but I located it. And Mr. Fuller, this is from 25 years ago, 1993, Mr. Fuller at the Welsing Institute talking about the concept of VGQ and why he does not like the use of the term brother. Got another term on there, VGQ. What does that mean? Victims Guaranteed Qualification. <clears throat> now, that keeps you from getting into arguments 
with other black people, particularly on television, which I get sick of that. Black people shouting. You know, we get into our ghetto thing once we get on television and get wound up, and we start all yelling at once. And the racists sit there smugly and just look. They watch the tennis match, so to speak. Right. And black people are shouting each other down, talking about, you don't know what you're talking about, and so and so and so and so, and we go into our Amos and Andy and Sapphire Act. Okay. BGQ means Victims Guaranteed Qualification. Guaranteed qualification to do what? To give your opinion on anything about race. Don't care what it is. If you're on there with uh, Minister Farrakhan or you're on there with uh, Mike Tyson or you're on there with uh, Miss, what's her name, Williams, the lady that had him put in, you know, recommended that he be put in jail, or you're on there with uh, anybody. See, don't cut the other black person down. I don't even like that term, brother and sister, even though it's been around for about 30 years. But I ain't, I ain't going to talk about the brother here. I don't, you know, no. See, we haven't reached that stage where we can do that. See, we got we got to crawl before we walk, and but we don't miss any steps. Don't say you are what you're not. Don't say you feel something that you don't really feel. You don't really feel that he's a brother. I usually use the expression, I don't like anybody in here. I say that to all audiences. I haven't been taught to like anybody. I've been taught to dislike people. I've been taught that. And then they're taught to dislike me, so it's just compounded disliking. They haven't even got the love yet. All right. So what we do is minimize conflict, try not to hurt each other. So a certain thing, that's what a code is for. It's a stopgap. It keeps me from saying something against you. You say, well, don't you agree with uh, what this person just said down here on the other end and whatnot? That person has VGQ, Mr. Donahue. I keep using him because he's one of the most prominent uh, TV people. Right. But the main thing you do is try to stay off of a radio program or TV program or even a neighborhood stage program, you might say, where you spend your time shouting back and forth at other black people. Nothing is getting done there. And when it's done on television, a lot of black people just get up from the TV set and go on in the kitchen somewhere. Once that shouting starts, yeah, they get disgusted. Say, you know, they say, oh, here we go. They started off okay, but now they're, you know, they're doing a job on each other, and I don't even want to hear it. So just don't do it. And you cut it off. The cutoff point is that person has victims guaranteed qualification. You spell it out what it means meaning the person can say anything about race that they want to, and I can say anything about it that I want to. You, you are guaranteed that. You earn that as a victim, simply by being a victim. Now, if a white person says something, that's something else. Something else entirely, but I'm so glad I found it to get that on the record. Uh, <laughs> the word brother, I've said that for years. I have politely requested people not call me brother. Uh, I'm of the opinion we will have all of that fraternity after the establishment of justice, not while we are still on the plantation of white supremacy. And we need to be honest. Very, very important. Let's be honest about where we are. We have not been taught to be brotherly, sisterly with each 
other. Let's just be honest about that. Don't like anybody in here. Don't like anybody on any of the plantations that I've been to. Just being truthful, that is the system of white supremacy. Moving forward. Uh, so list of things to discuss before we get to the callers. we? hopefully we will cover everything. Number one, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. You'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner of the page. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all of the cows, listeners, brothers and sisters who have invested uh, nearly a decade uh, of counter-racist broadcasting. I hope uh, we have helped victims of white supremacy get an accurate understanding of what white supremacy racism is, how it works. You can also support by nabbing items from Gus's wish list, Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Linked also on the blog. Again, massive appreciation to all the folks who have picked up an item or two over the years. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Next up. Woo, so much to share. Uh, So yoga Got to get my yoga uh, snippets in before we proceed. Teacher training began. Uh, I'm going to pro- I'm going to try to confine anything that I share about the teacher training to workplace racism, since that's how I'm viewing it. Workplace racism, Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I am the only black male in the teacher training class of eight. I think one of the individuals might be classified as non-white. Uh, But I think also he's not even a permanent member of our group. He just visits from time to time because they have trainings going on at multiple spots uh, in the city of Seattle. So uh, the only black male in the course, Gus T. We've only had a couple of classes thus far. Uh, The piece that I did not mention on Thursday's workplace racism, we had to give an introduction uh, at Wednesday's class, class number one, we had to go around, give an introduction and say something new that we each had done recently. And the person who spoke immediately before me was a white person. And we had a room of, as I've already explained, mostly white people. And he says, well, the thing that I did, did new, oh, it was a white woman. She says, the thing that I did new, uh, I just adopted a dog. And you can imagine the response of the suspected race soldiers present, the ooing and eyeing and cooing. I mean, they almost burst into tears. It was incredible. Dr. Francis Chris Welsing, Romulus Remus. So she goes and after, you know, they take a moment for Kleenex and, you know, get all of the emotion out, they go to me. All righty. What's what's your story and something new? Now, I my something new is I just was in the room for a natural childbirth. The response was, hmm. How interesting. Wow. (laughs) I'm listening like, wow. So an adopted dog is worthy of more empathy and affection than a brand new child. Wowie. I have learned a lot in day one about what the next eight weeks of hanging out with you folks is going to be like. That was one I wanted to make sure. 
That was one I wanted to make sure I shared from yoga. But the most important, the most important piece that I got from yoga this week, I get lots of signals. I have received lots of signals over the last six months that practicing yoga right now, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. That's the way that I have processed it. Uh, Lots of cows listeners have really supported my yoga practice. Folks have said that they started practicing yoga themselves and uh, lots of cows listeners have got me, you know, new yoga mats and everything to uh, support my practice, which I greatly appreciate. The, I think one of the best signals that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing with some of my time and energy currently I was reading the yoga manual, going over what we were going to cover in class yesterday evening. And a big part of being a yoga instructor, you give uh, assist. You help people with their alignment and poses, make sure they're doing the pose uh, safely. Uh, And if they can do it safely, then you can even help them deepen uh, so that they can, you know, get a deeper stretch. So they have principles of assists. Uh, And they give different ways that you can help verbal cues uh, where you can go and give a a demonstration where you can actually physically touch them. So it says assisting makes you a better teacher and helps you to understand the body and intricacies of alignment. Keep in mind and it gives, you know, several little bullet points to keep in mind as you go. Fourth bullet point. Assist those who need the most help first. That should sound very familiar to Cal's listeners. ProduceJustice.com, Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. But that is one of the core principles, apparently, of being a yoga instructor. And I read this Friday in the afternoon. This came up in class in the evening where we went, read that exact same section that I just read to you. What did I ask? How do you determine who needs the most help in a yoga class? And the instructor said, that is a great question, Gus. Indeed, indeed, the logic of Neely Fuller Jr., ProduceJustice.com, brilliant. Continuing, t-shirts should be in. Everyone who pre-ordered a t-shirt, your shirt should be with you uh, presently. Feel free to share if you've been out and about. What type of response did you get from whites? What type of response did you get from non-whites? If we have folks who have endured Gus T for approximately six years if you have the original shirt or you had at some point the original shirt before it became a rag or whatever uh, and you got a new one is there a difference in how people respond to the two shirts there's a slight change please respect please treat me like a white person so that is something to share I can't say I've been wearing my shirt to yoga class and I wore it to yoga training yesterday Uh, the most memorable response there was a black male I was coming from yoga class, black male saw the shirt and, and he just, he loved it. He demanded that I stop and uh, shake his hand and talk to him briefly. He just thought it was the best thing ever. And if he had $25, I think he would have bought one right now uh, if I had one to sell him. But he just, he thought it was tremendous, which is pretty similar to the response that I would most often get from other non-white people, black people when they saw the shirt as well. Let's see, next up, okay. Seattle, I have bragged, I think I've said repeatedly on the air that I think Seattle is the best plantation in the U.S., this part of the world that I have been to easily. Also have to give the critiques uh, of, I mean, we're still system of white supremacy, so it can't be that great. 
this here weekend, uh, the first official weekend of the summer of 2018, is what they call Pride Weekend here in Seattle. The LGBT wing of the white supremacy ar army has taken over this area of Seattle, my temporary flood residence and the yoga studio that I attend are at ground zero for all of the mayhem associated with uh, what they call Pride Weekend. Uh, in fact, in order to get to the yoga studio for mandatory class yesterday evening and the two actual yoga classes that I took today, I had to go. The street that I had to walk on was closed. This is a major artery in the city of Seattle, closed so that they could have the gay parade. Hmm. Continuing, the piece on the children being separated at the border that bothered me throughout the week, and the problem that I had with it. Seeing whites pretend and seeing massive numbers of whites feign concern for children, white children, non-white children, is extraordinarily irritating for me. I have said for years, I think uh, the first time that I was saying this explicitly on the program was following Sandy Hook also in 2012, whites do not care about children. I'm just making, you know, flat statements so I could be in error. Anyone who thinks that I am in error, feel free to chime in. Whites, just going by the logic, the record, whites do not care about children, white or non-white. We have all sat and watched whites for years after they had these school shootings where sometimes all of the victims were white and they did nothing. No change to gun regulation. In fact, would get upset at the mere thought of changing gun regulations. That is a very recent thing. Saying, oh man, they shot up another couple dozen children. Maybe this time we'll, we'll change a law to, to maybe make this a little more difficult. But I mean, really, non-white children. Please, I'm saying whites don't care about white children. You can look at the example of the school shootings. You can look at the fact that they brag about handing over their little urchins to mammies. Isn't that what they sing about? Isn't that the help? Octavia Spencer, didn't she get nominated for, uh, what, the, what is it, an Academy Award? Uh, uh, the female from How to Get Away with Murder as, as well. Viola Davis, I think she got nominated as well. They've bragged about this for years, not taking care of their children. Here, you got to take care of the little one. We got Negras to attend to. We got big things to where I can take care of this little, you know, white baby. I got to go out here and tend to my Negras. Got more raping to do. That's White's record for years. <laughs> Uh, again, we haven't even got to the non-white children yet. Just looking at their own conduct with white children, you hand over your offspring to folks that you have called monkeys and gorillas and the most ignorant thing to walk the face of the earth, but you hand over your children to them to watch, wet nurse, everything. Non-white children? We just heard about Sally Hemings, even though they didn't emphasize that she was a child when all this rape began with uh, Thomas Jefferson. But that would be exhibit A. I mean, you could just go down the list on that one. Ayanna Stanley Jones, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown. Take your pick. Emmett Till, take your pick. White people care about non-white children, the way the abuse, the systemic abuse that you see doled out to non-white children worldwide we're not even talking about uh slavery the piece that you heard dark voyage 
of the earth, talking about how the enslaved black children were stolen uh, from the continent, brought here. Most of the individuals on the boat, very young children, doesn't matter, not too young to be raped in the system of white supremacy. That is consistent. We talked about that over and over and over. It's in Delectable Negro. It's in the half has never been told, which I'm going to quote again in about five minutes. But the long, indisputable record, whites do not care about children, period, to then come and lie and be stunned that President Donald J. Trump would have such a policy. And we're really upset about it after we voted to put him in office. Mm. most irritating uh, bit of white supremacy racism for the week, even though I super appreciate the piece by Nikki Taylor, uh, chair of the history department at Howard University. Continuing. The piece on Sally Hemings, Nikki Taylor, aforementioned, I did not hear a succinct statement of logic the way that Robert Jensen suspected race soldier stated it on this broadcast his first time or actually third time that he visited back in 2011 the logic is not how I feel and it doesn't matter how they felt even for people who think that it was some sort of plantation romance that's totally irrelevant the logic is if we're in a system of white supremacy and Sally Hemings is a slave this is rape period slave master Slave, uh, what they uh, talk about, what is it, consent? That has been totally eradicated. It's rape, it's logic, period. Do you need a lecture from the Me Too, mom- uh, Me Too movement? I did not hear that stated succinctly, and I heard it greatly minimized. This is not just rape, this is child rape. Really, if you want to totally obliterate all that nonsense that, oh, this was a great romance, and whoa, 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 are you saying it was a child rape romance is that what you're saying continuing uh with that piece i don't know i'm asking a question did you get the sense the people talking that this was some sort of celebration acknowledging that yes thomas jefferson had this negro on the plantation and he raped her and now we're going to acknowledge this arrangement why is that something to celebrate why is that talked about as though it is some form of progress that It was astounding just to hear that in the segment as though I do not see what the constructive value uh, of this is, especially if we're going to minimize that this was rape, child rape, especially if that's going to be minimized. I have no idea what the value is and even the sense of of pride from some of the non-white relatives about, yes, we are the ancestors and the metaphors the metaphors i in fact i'll get in one more thing and then we'll get to the phone lines before i get to the metaphors when they were talking about sally hemmings and hinting that this might have been some sort of romance and they talked about the agency that she had to negotiate for her uh offspring do you all remember when we read edward baptist the half has never been told uh from the book club this was at the end of 2015 right into 2016 And he had the line he was talking about. He has a whole chapter talking about whites raping slaves. His chapter, he says, of course, some women of African-American descent use their sexuality to create a little leverage for themselves. That sentence specifically, we talked about it for weeks because I asked about that. Edward Baptist is a white man. And I asked if that's an act of racism. What do people think about him making such a statement? What you just heard in that segment about Sally Hemings. 
that seems to reinforce what he said, that Sally Hemings used her sexuality to create a little leverage for herself, unless I'm misinterpreting what I just heard in that segment from the CBC. What do you all make of that? Is that logical? Does that make sense? Is it accurate? Question. Continuing, or actually, I'll stop there. Metaphors, if we could not use metaphors for the broadcast, this uh, compensatory call-in, I've asked that for a long time in that segment on Sally Hemings. Some of the metaphors were, in fact, some of the metaphors that were used throughout the segments, the very first segment that we heard uh, the black uh, sharecropper in North Carolina saying that his father told him, uh, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hold on tight. Wow. Quite a metaphor in the system of white supremacy reminded me of Dr. Kevorkian saying, I think he was talking about the purge where he said the haunting line, there was a problem, black male was being bound. What do we do? Get a rope. The metaphor that was used in the Sally Hemings piece, Sally Hemings had a leg up on other black people because she was able to leverage herself in her arrangement with Thomas Jefferson. So her children had a leg up on other black people. I even thought, wow, we don't have black male privilege here. We have plantation privilege here being suggested. And the advantage is looked at as an advantage over other black people. Hmm. Again, you all can let me know if I have misinterpreted something or if you have different thoughts, please let me know. But just those two I'll use for right now. Please, let's be explicit, direct about what we would like to say. Whites frequently employ metaphors to generate confusion. It is a tactic of master deception. Victims of white supremacy, including Gus T. We are still learning. Often we use metaphors, comparisons when we are still thinking. We haven't come to a conclusion on a subject and we will substitute that metaphor for logic. And often that just creates more problems, more confusion, lack of understanding if we could be direct specific about what it is that we want to say that would be super appreciated i will prompt about that uh last thing that i'll say just thinking about words we are supposed to be mindful about what words we use i think i'm going to discontinue discontinue saying the word enslaved I know a lot of black people make a big deal about that term when they're talking about like the older eras of white supremacy uh, and plantation abuse uh, and saying enslaved, uh, you're not a slave. Being a slave makes it sound like you were born that way and enslaved is a verb. Whites have done something to you. I appreciate the logic of all that, but the thing that overwhelms all of that for me is if white supremacy racism is slavery, if as Mr. Reed points out so passionately, consistently on his network, slavery didn't end. If that's the case, then we should make sure that we're using terms that reflect that. And I do not want to minimize anything. It does not make me feel better to say that Gus T is enslaved. That does not do anything for my self-esteem, my pride, nothing. If I'm a slave, I would much rather just be called that so there's no confusion about the fact that Gus T is a slave and then we can get to work trying to solve that problem with a sense of urgency. Whites are very, very good with not using the most correct terms, even the terms that are painful to us. If that's what it is, let's do that so we don't get confused because, man, confusion is lethal. And it seems it can be very, very difficult sometimes to convince people, yes, slavery does still exist. And in fact, 
you are one of the slaves. It seems that that can be a very, very difficult proposition at times. Maybe I'm in error. The number again is 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button. Super appreciated. Uh, just to, we don't have to fight over a lot of unnecessary background noise. Again, if you could take five minutes to share whatever comments you have. Thank you so much. That makes sure everyone gets an opportunity to speak. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should, well, mm. The first few people who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Good evening, guys. Greetings. Greetings, Thomas Brother Thomas in New York. Greetings, Brother Gus. Um, yes, um, I was very confused with what Sally Hemmings family wants. Um, I have written here, what do they want? Um, do they want to be validated by the white people for um, their ancestor being raped continuously, having five kids with this um, slave master, that's not consensual. Um, I mean, I, I don't really get the, to, to have her room on display and the, the, the way it, with no windows to, to make you feel this way. I mean, I just wish they would um, leave that whole thing alone. Um, like you said, whites don't care about children. They have um, people classified as non-white, usually people classified as black, pushing their children around. I see them every day, picking their children up from school, and we know how they feel about us. Um, I also see now the Asians, um, children being pushed around by people classified as black as well. Um, comparing the immigrants um, coming into the country illegally um, to slaves. You know, I remember Katrina. Those people were called refugees um, on their own land uh, in places where they paid taxes, um, trying to get um, to safety or, or refuge. Called refugees, not citizens. I think that, um, you know, white people have consistently um, used these type of terms for people that are not white. Um, I was on a <clears throat> um, cruise um, this week. Um, I had to break hold. It was mandatory for work, um, but it was a after-work function. Um, I did um, take my wife with me, and um, I, my code was I'm not drinking, and I made a lot of observations. And I was the first one off, first one in the cab out. You know, they provided car service for us to get home. Either way, we passed the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Allen. And, um, you know, the difference between when white people want to come into this country and when non-white people want to come into this country is um, it's, it's very, um, it's right there. Um, it, it really shows. Uh, which, which even brings me to the Haitians. I remember them turning their boat around in the middle of the ocean um, when they tried to come here. Um, nonetheless, um, the children of these um, um, people who come into this country, they a bunch of them ended up in New York. And um, how they got from Texas to New York, even the mayor and the governor can't figure it out. 
on all the orphanages that have taken these children and have been hit with gag orders, so they can't give any information. Uh, however, what the news has reported is a lot of these young girls are pregnant. Um, most of them were raped on the trip here. They came with no parents. Um, they were just, I guess, just sent, you know, from wherever they came with an aunt or a friend, whoever, you know, just um, it's a sad situation. Um, I think it's going to be even sadder. Um, everyone wanted them to be put back with their parents. So now you're going to have the images of children in a cell with their parents. Um, you're going to get more fake white outrage because if they wanted to change this, they could simply uh, have Congress make a law to change it, but they don't want to. Um, it, it, you know, this is just how they do. Um, I hope no one's really taking this like, oh, these poor people. Just, just look at what white people are doing. And they have a consistent record of doing the same thing over and over again. Um, name the school after Obama. Um, now the conversation is all about Obama. It's not about the racist and what he did. The person at that school was named after for the last however many years. Um, I think that's just a tactic for the white people. Um, last thing I wanted to say, um, another young male classified as black killed in Florida. Yet we still have Zimmerman riding around terrorizing people there. Um, but this is a dead rapper. Um, I can't really pronounce his name, but X Tensiacion something. Um, but what compelled me with this guy was he had a video, and in this video, he had a little black kid, a little black child, and a little white child walking into a rope. And the white child put his head in the rope, and he started lifting the rope up, and he hung this white child in the video, which got a lot of flack, of course, when you look at the comments and things from where he posted it, it's, it's you know, white supremacy, but um, it, it, it's just um, another dead, dead young black male. Thank you. Appreciate that, Thomas, in New York. I uh, saw that this week. That did get a lot of attention this week as well. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up that we have not heard from, if you have commentary. Have you heard of them? Uh, we'll get our female caller first. I did hear uh, Mr. Steele and the other caller. Uh, Draft a mania. Did you want to proceed? Uh, yes. Uh, good evening, all. Uh, good evening, evening uh, Gus and callers. Um, I wanted to make a comment in regards to um, uh, Sally Hemmons and Thomas Jefferson. Um, it's no coincidence. It's just earlier this uh, today. I was li listening to a crash course. Um, video and they were talking about um thomas jefferson and the guy in the in the uh, video he was talking about how thomas jefferson was a racist and you know talking about sally hemison um and you know he was just basically explaining the history in regards to that and then now tonight you just played the um, whole um scenario about uh sally hemmons and i i was i'm going to kind of like put the I went to a, a event today in a park and where I live at like um I guess you can kind of say like um you know you have so many people that think that um you know these forefathers were so great and here in North Carolina at this event it was a summer solstice event and there were um they're like it's they're so big into this whole um uh, uh, interracial dating and marriage. I mean, you saw a whole bunch of that um, at this event. 
you saw a whole bunch of um, mixed um, children. You saw a whole lot of um, uh, cultural appropriation. Um, they had drummers, African drummers. And there was this, I was like, wow, you know, it's like, you know, like just being clear on what's going on. You just see things from a whole totally different perspective. I mean, it was only one black African drummer. The rest of the drummers there were all Caucasian. They were dressed in African garb and um, uh, clothing, playing, just drumming their hearts out. They, they were just drumming. They was really just drumming and really doing it very, you know, um, enthusiastically and Everybody was up dancing and everything. And I always like associated, you know, like if sex was was supposed to eradicate uh, racism, then it, you know, that whole the Sally Hemming story would have proven that to be so. But even that guy earlier in that um, in the program, he was saying that that he was just. Thomas Jefferson was just a racist. And I was like, you know what, a lot of these, um, a lot of us, and especially, you know, a lot of times people don't want to listen to stuff unless it's coming from white white people. So I was like, you know, you see, look at it, look at it, look at how all it is, you know, they're having sex and then like these same people that are out here dancing and drumming and, you know, taking on, acting as if they really like love our culture and all of this and that. But like you, you just put up all those points of Tamir, um, Tamir Rice. Um, what was the 12 year old little boy that got um, killed that had the fake gun? All these little children and all of us that get killed. I wonder how, you know, are they, are they showing that they really care about us when those types of incidents happen? Or is it just, you know, when, um, when it's down, you know, for us to so-called get together and act as if they they have some type of um, love for our culture or because they're just stealing our culture. Um, because I was just listening to one of your um, programs about the um, uh, Eminem and Tina Marie, and, and uh, you were talking about how they just, you know, they were just white people and they just, you know, they just take on our stuff and they just steal it and they just do what they get. They'll get all this recognition for doing this stuff, for taking on our music and our culture. And then they'll act like they, they'll take over and they act like they can do it better than us and get more recognition than we, um, than we will get for it. And then it will even get paid better and, um, won't die poor like most of the artists, um, that um, throughout history um, have that were non-white, they end up dying broke as a result of their uh, culture being stolen from seconds. them. Okay, and um, the Purge. I just saw a, a preview for the Purge. They have a new Purge coming out. Oh, much obliged, uh, Draftomania. Yes, I saw that number four. Not surprised. Uh, they'll probably be making them for a while. Uh, let's see. Thanks for your patience. We'll nab Mr. Steele. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, this is Ken Steele, and I'm calling from Keno, California. Um, the first topic I wanted to talk about was 
the story about right to return in Portland, Oregon. And I visited Portland uh, maybe a year and a half ago. And it was easily one of the, uh, one of the whitest uh, communities I've ever been in. Uh, the entire uh, community seemed uh, pretty much devoid of any black people. I didn't see any black people until I went to the mall. In the entire uh, airport known as PDX, I was the only black person uh, that I saw other than a uh, baggage handling person who was from Eritrea and a very old black man uh, who was shining shoes. Um, I, I interviewed for a position there and they asked me, uh, how do you like Portland? And my response was, there's a lot of trees here. Uh, <laughs> and that was probably the nicest thing that I could say about Portland. Uh, also, the right to return uh, program cannot work and doesn't even sound logical unless if you bring the black people that have been displaced back into the neighborhood and you bring them up to the financial level of the current neighborhood. So if it, if the houses cost 250000 you have to bring people, uh, br the black people that you bring in have to be made to be able to afford the $250,000 uh, mortgage. And unless if you're willing to give uh, direct cash assistance or cash benefits, I don't think that that program is going to work, and I don't think that that program uh, can be sincered. Uh, can be sincere. Also, there was a talk of a, a law that was passed uh, in honor or recognition of uh, police officers that were allowed to walk uh, following the execution of a pregnant black woman and her unborn child. And um, regardless of what law is passed, uh, as long as we live under a system of white supremacy, uh, law enforcement officers or rather race soldiers posing as law enforcement officers will still be allowed to kill uh, black people with no consequence. So uh, I, I think that it's very sad that she was well, killed, wow. but I don't think that there will be any change as a result of uh, this law being passed. Uh, also, uh, I wanted to offer um, a little bit of code uh, just for the listeners, something that I've adopted, and I think I've shared this in the past, but I, I recently found an opportunity where I need to uh, remind, where I needed to remind myself of my code. Yeah. And uh, this code is uh, in the wake of the uh, the execution of uh, of Triple X Tentacion. Um, I don't talk about rap with white people. I, I just don't discuss rap music or uh, black people or young black people with, uh, with white people at all. Uh, it's, uh, if I find myself in an environment where there are uh, people who are classified as white discussing rap music, I do not validate their opinion or what they have to say by responding to them. And I suggest that 
other victims of racism uh, proceed in the same manner. If we stop uh, regarding their opinions as valid in this matter or in matters dealing with us, um, I think that'll help us preserve uh, some black self-respect and some uh, uh, black mental health. And also, um, a bit of workplace racism before I leave. Uh, if you are working hourly and you are making less than maybe $30 an hour, maybe $35 an hour, uh, you, you're, you're not making that much money and you need to work harder to uh, get out of that situation. And uh, overtime is taxed, uh, and all of your uh, hours are taxed higher than all other forms of income. So try to reduce the amount of work, uh, the amount of money that you have to make from working hourly or getting paid a wage. Um, just uh, try to try to minimize that and look for other streams of income. I'll go ahead and mute my line at this time. Thank you. Much obliged, Mr. Steele. Uh, if folks could, again, be mindful uh, of using your mute button, just helps so that we don't have a lot of unnecessary uh, background noise. Much obliged. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if we've not heard from you at all, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Um, uh, listen, Nab, Red I'll, on the I'll bottom. go after if you like, I, I can go after Mr. Scotty. Oh, okay. Um, no, no, you, you go first. Go ahead. You spoke before me. Go ahead, please. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, hello to everyone. Write poorly, and hopefully everyone else is doing fine. Um, first thing I wanted to say about the rapper, his name is um, it's pronounced Extension, and I remember the first time I heard the name was, I don't know if it was on this show or another show, but it, the, basically I found the article and it says researchers unclear why suicide increasing among black children. And it basically talks about this 11 year old black male who committed suicide and he was listening to that rapper. And so I um, YouTube, hit, like I looked him up and listened to one of his songs because in the article it says, um, and this is from the Chicago Tribune, he had a song where he was where he hung himself. And then he also had another song or a video where he hung himself. And then he had a song called Suicide Pit. So I can understand why some maybe other black people who maybe have listened to like 90s rap don't really know who he is because it's kind of like a twist between, um, I, I don't know, maybe this new rap and like metal, like heavy metal type of thing where he's just yelling with a bass beat. Uh, that, that's on him. And then um, that's all I had about him. Uh, the other thing with the whole Sally Hemings thing, I definitely agree that if you, if, if white people can, uh, can say that, you know, Sally Hemings was a love story, which um, I don't, which is ridiculous, then this whole, then the whole Me Too takeover, what, takeover by white women, um, that, that, that can actually be a thing. Because if they're saying that, oh, well, she made it, and I do feel like that segment did make, her, make it seem as if she got this benefit by being raped by this older white racist. Um, they actually said, and, and I apologize, I don't have the quote, but it's basically towards the end where they were like, oh, well, she did get benefits and she was free, but she wasn't really free, but she got to still enjoy some of the freedom. That does not make sense at all. So, and, and also her children at 21, that's when they're supposed to be free. So obviously that didn't seem like she got too much of a 
um, benefit out of being raped, especially if she was just in a closet. So it really seemed like she was a slave and a sex slave and a sex slave all, all in one. Um, uh, the other thing, the PBS segment, um, I don't know, maybe I misheard, but it seemed like after they were talking about it's the PBS NewsHour segment about um, Portland, I think that was, when they were talking about moving people back in, moving black people back in, it says that they were supposed to have 65, but then they only did, then they said, oh, well, we only actually moved back in six people. It kind of sounded like there was laughing or maybe a crowd, they played like a crowd soundtrack or something, but I thought that that was odd. Maybe I misheard it. But I definitely agree with basically what Kent still said. It's like, well, if you move these black people back in, what about the other white people who might not be um, okay with this, with that whole program? So they're still going to be, they're still going to be likely surrounded. These new black people are going to be likely surrounded by, um, you know, white people in their schools, hospitals, and jobs. And are these black people going to have, you know, jobs if they're moving back? Um, the other thing, I guess, I'll, um, the, the last thing I'll, I'll say is um, just some information about, of course, the the heroin junkie epidemic, which I'll try to you know name it that. Um, apparently, in Ohio, they have in less than one year, um, whites have uh, decreased the, the death rate by 34 percent. So I definitely, you know, that definitely is just another example that you know if white people if they really want to they can decrease deaths in anyone. They just choose not to. Um, I'm, oh, sorry. Don't really have too much information about the whole, or, you know, really too much thought about the whole immigrant family separation situation, because I don't know if these people are classified as white or non-white, not saying that, you know, children shouldn't be mistreated, but it's like, that's, that's the thing. It's like, are, are these people now considered non-white? And do they now understand that meaning? And I'll meet my line. Thank you. Much obliged for that. Whites, absolutely. They can solve problems when they want to. Uh, founder of the Black Talk Radio Network, Mr. Scotty Reed. Good to hear from you, sir. Good to hear your voice as well. Greetings to you and all the callers. The system of slavery and white supremacy is global. And white, non-white people are oppressed all over the planet. I guess... When you talked about the brother thing, that has never really bothered me. But I thought about you, and I've known that you've had that stance for a couple of years now. I think you said, don't call me brother. And somebody called me brother the other day. A black person referred to me as a brother. And while trying to convince me of some adopting this white supremacist uh, support of Donald Trump's immigration policy, and when he just called me brother, I felt kind of, I felt something about that. And I thought about what you had said about your code of, you know, don't want to use that term. So I may stop using that term, term myself. Um, I'm not going to make an issue if somebody calls me that, I'll just overlook it. But I'm going to stop using that term myself because I have found that when non-white people, black people disagree with each other, we engage in name calling and we don't act too brotherly or sisterly. Uh, towards each other. So I think I may not use that word uh, anymore. I agree with you on the commentary about Sally Hemming having agency, and agency is a metaphor for power. And she was 16 years old at that time when she so-called negotiated uh, with her rapist, Thomas Jefferson. So she was still a child. Her, her brain still not fully developed. 
And I agree. Didn't sound like she got much of a deal. Okay. Um, why she chose came back. I'll just say VGQ on that. You know, uh, that was her decision. I can't really comment on why she would not stay in France and decided to return here. Now she was pregnant at the time when all this was going on, uh, with a child. Okay. So I just thought that was weird. For And again, I'm not trying to criticize the descendant that we heard speaking, talking about she has some agency and some privilege and, and all of that, but it just reminded me of a conversation that's being had in hip-hop. Uh, Nicki Minaj, possibly doing some self-reflection, said that she found out that these beautiful young girls on Instagram and whatnot, that you can have sex with them. $4,000 and she was reflecting on how she's been using sex to sell her records and if she has had a negative influence on, on making that coming about. And she was attacked for that. She was attacked for that. She was caught. She was uh, being accused of slut shaming and, you know, saying that she was down as sex workers. So that kind of reminded me of that, you know, uh, uh, agency, you using sex as, as a way to get ahead. That just seemed like incorrect behavior to me. But again, you know, I ain't trying to criticize nobody out there. I ain't in their situation. I ain't in their circumstances. You do what you need to do to survive. Um, on the Portland right of return, I didn't hear anything. I, 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 I may have missed it. I didn't hear anything about reparations. You took these people land. Whether or not you have given them the right to return, seems to me you need to give them the full valuation of that property and, and give them reparations. And so the brother was saying, I don't want to return. He should get money. He should get reparations for, for uh, that act of racism that was uh, practiced against him. Now, it also reminded me of the, the marches in Palestine, uh, the right to return uh, to, to their homes that was stolen from them and, and, you know, terrorism used to push them off their property and what have you. And they're being shot down by the thousands and what have you. All right. So it just reminded me of that when they said the right of return. I was like, wow, really? They, they named it right of return. And but again, they should be giving them reparations, not saying, oh, you can just come back. Now, the last thing on the uh, the children. And again, you know, people have their own codes. I don't try to tell people, you know, uh, what language to use or whatnot. I do understand, as some elders have told me, why they use the term enslaved. Um, Cause they say that when you call them a slave, you dehumanizing them. Okay, so I heard that years ago. Um, in terms, I have always referred to myself as a slave waiting to happen, cause I'm behind enemy lines with slave catchers everywhere, and at any moment I can get pulled over, get framed for something I didn't do, or I, they can frame me for something kind of my. So I'm a slave waiting to happen. Um, but I do distinguish myself from those who are, as you call it, greater confinement. Um, I, I do call that slavery, and um, I do feel like this is slavery, what, what is uh, being done. I predicted this in 2015, by the way, with an immigration attorney that this was going to happen because we pay attention to what the private prisons were pushing. And one of the things they did not make note of, oh, we're going to keep the families together, but I didn't hear that white woman on that, on that broadcast say an indefinite detention. Do people know what indefinite detention means? That means that we can lock you up until we say you can get out. All right. So, so I thought that was disingenuous for them to not point out that, hey, 
this isn't better. That just means that they, like, like the other caller pointed out, that the families are going to be kept uh, on, on this prison plantation together. And I'm sure these private prison stocks have, well, I know they have because I pay attention to the private prison stocks, and I'm sure they're scrambling to purchase more space to house these people um, to make uh, lots of money uh, off of them. And that's all I wanted to share, and thank you for allowing me to. Much obliged, Mr. Scotty Reed, founder of the Black Talk Radio Network that you are listening to right now. Appreciate the commentary. Absolutely. Whites, uh, they are excellent. Uh, with Tony Morrison's bluest eye, she said it's change, but not improvement. That is generally the way that they operate, dealing with the problems that they create for non-whites worldwide. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, if we've not heard from you at all, if you have commentary that you would like to share, proceed. Hey, can I be heard? No, we heard. Uh, let's nab our female caller first. Greetings to us and greetings to all the callers on the line. Um, I wanted to thank Red for keeping us informed about the um, the opioid abuse uh, the white degeneracy, and she's been keeping us informed for a long time. Like this didn't just start, and um, I appreciated uh, particularly her comments, her commentary last week, I believe it was, when she was talking about a particular um, harmful ingredient, for lack of words, that that might be in uh, these opioids. I forget the name of it, but she was saying that. Um, they were giving, they were giving uh, people who abuse opioids, they were giving them the ability to test the drug for this particular harmful ingredient, as if opioids aren't harmful enough, um, to see that if, if that particular uh, deadly ingredient is in there, they can choose whether or not they're going to take the drug. Um, and again, I appreciate all of her, her commentary on that, and as well as so many other things. And in my mind, her name, Red, uh, stands for our resident expert on the dog food epidemic. I'm in my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Much obliged, Ivy. Uh, the caller at 1553. Thank you for yielding to Ivy. Did you have commentary, sir? Uh, yes. How you doing? This is a uh, victim from out of New Jersey. Um... The immigration um, thing, this is just a question for the callers. What do y'all think about this? This is a discussion um, that I've been participating in. Um, some say that uh, black uh, black descendants of slaves um, shouldn't really be concerned with uh, the issue that's, that's um, going on as far as uh, the detained uh, uh, children of um of immigrants um of south american um, ancestry um being that the troubles that's been going on amongst our communities um you know with um our children being gunned down by um, law enforcement um race soldiers posing as law enforcement um whether you have uh Tamir rice uh, there was another incident of uh young um, black male gunned down by police while fleeing the car. 
Um, also, we was talking about the um, in L.A. Uh, reports of um, Mexican gangs firebombing um, black residents, um, regardless of whether they were participating in gang activity or not. So uh, the discussion amongst certain circles was that um, black people should basically yield and not even um, waste any energy in protesting or or or, uh, or even uh, coming to the aid of uh, detained children of uh, um, immigrants. Um, I want to know what you guys thought about that. Um, also, Gus, um, something that you talked about last week, if you mind, if you don't mind, um, it was the 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 uh, Netflix series uh, Black Lightning. <laughs> oh, man, we I do not do of, entertainment. We do not do entertainment. No, 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 we no, no. Not, not do entertainment. entertainment. This, no, no. This is this is a response to you. I just wanted to let you know when when uh, Professor Rossian suggested that. Mm-hmm. I, I I just knew that you was going to basically oh, okay. see one episode oh. and just say, call it quit. Uh, I'm just letting you know, when I've when I seen it, every stereo, every negative stereotype possible was in that film. That, that's all I wanted to say when you brought it up um, last week. Um, with that being said, um, I'll, that's all I have. Right. My apologies. The reason that the response was so intense was uh, I did not endure one episode. I endured five minutes of one episode. And that was when I had to submit uh, it, the anti-blackness was so stifling. I could feel my black self-respect uh, crumbling uh, with each frame that passed, you know, across my eyes. That was the intensity. I could not endure another. Oh, I watched it. Let me tell <laughs> like, uh, woo. Thank you kindly, sir. Uh, my quick response to your uh, question, VGQ, again, victims, guaranteed qualified uh if any non-white person if they choose to focus on this as a problem as an aspect of white supremacy racism that's their choice they can do so if a person uh makes the decision that they're not going to focus on this that's their choice vgq the only thing that i would say is keep in mind the problem the folks who are most to blame for this problem and all of the other problems are all classified as white very important to keep that in mind regardless of whether you you know invest time and energy on this at all that'd be my view other folks we've not heard from at all Woo. I feel like i had a stress response just hearing the title black lightning again Woo. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all if you have a hand up uh proceed <clears throat> Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus. Uh, this is uh, Henry, for Henry from Chicago. Um, the Curtis Flowers uh, segment that you played in regards to uh, him being prosecuted, uh, I think it said six times, uh, kind of reminds me of a case out here in Chicago. Uh, one uh, Jackie Wilson non-white black male who has been in jail for 36 years. Uh, He was just released uh, this week because uh, he was actually one of the victims of the John Burge 
John Burge uh, incident that happened here in Chicago. John Burge, a race soldier who basically uh, tortured uh, many black victims here and uh, put them in jail illegally. And the prosecutors are planning on, uh, well, Jackie Wilson was so-called accused of killing two cops, and that's why he spent 36 years in jail. But the prosecutors are planning to try to convict him, try to try him and try to convict him again. So, um, you know, white people will not give up uh, when black folks are being released like that. Um, in regards to the Sally Hemings, uh, Thomas Jefferson piece, this basically goes to show um, white people's disregard, especially of sex, because of the fact that, you know, slaves were not considered human. So why would you, why would you even lay down with somebody that you did not consider human? And in regards to uh, Sally Hemings, uh, I guess, uh, uh, I guess her advantage, or you know whatever they want to call it, um, unless she was part of a poisoning of Thomas Jefferson, uh, I don't believe she had any type of upper hand uh, with that. So uh, with that, I will mute my line. Appreciate that, sir. Uh, John Birch, I think the official language that they use in describing that supposedly in the Chicago public schools, they're supposed to refer to that as terrorism. One thing that they might get accurate, Chicago public school system. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, uh, proceed. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, let's see what happened this week before 55. Um, I was on I was on a airport shuttle. Well, I got off the airport waiting for the little shuttle to the hotel to get my car. A white man sat next to me, told me that Bass Pro Shop was a horrible place to work because of discrimination. He was a civil rights attorney. He I guess he just retired and I guess he felt compelled to tell me these things. I don't know why. I guess I have I don't know. My mother says I have the face. <laughs> want to tell me things. So he went on and on about that. He marched in Washington, you know, which was unusual for white people. But every time I hear about the march on Washington, I hear more white people say they were there than black people. But um, then I asked him, well, why did you get into civil rights attorney? Do that. He said he had good parents. I was like, okay, whatever. Um, I was glad it was dark. Because he really couldn't see my facial expressions once we got on the little shuttle. Um, I then he said he was from New York. I said I was originally from New York. Then he went to South. He was like, "Oh, I'll tell you something else. I guess I got a bonus story because we were from the same place." And he convinced to tell me about Levittown and how it was only built for white people. I was like, "Yes, I've heard of that." But he, you know, reiterated, reiterated. I guess he was one of the good black people. And it was the federal government's fault that those towns existed and all of that. And it was like almost 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was just ready to get in my car and drive another hour to where I lived. Um, let's see. This, not to really talk about The Purge, that movie, but in that movie it seems to highlight that the idea was a white woman, which is very telling. Uh, you don't need to see the movie. I don't want to see the movie. But I think that that was very telling that they put, 
the idea of a purge on a white woman. Uh, last but not least, black male privilege. Cassie Griffin supposedly got mad at Kevin Hart, called him a pussy. Sorry for the language, but that is the word that she used. Because he did not tell Donald Trump jokes. He guess followed the advice of Michelle Obama, took the high road, and, you know, kept it you know, kept proceeding with his life and career. So black man, you know, you better tell jokes about Donald Trump, I guess. Thank you. Black male privilege indeed. Wow. <laughs> Contempt for gender. I got that <laughs> hashtag for the program today. Wow. Uh, other folks who uh, have commentary, uh, if we've not heard from you at all, uh, proceed. I'm glad that went safely, being uh, out and about late in the evening. I'm always suspicious when whites come up and feel like they need to voluntarily tell me stories uh, about racism. <laughs> like, I feel like you definitely need to have your guard up and be uh, alert. Uh, other folks we've not heard from? Can I be heard? Software, well, it's codified software developer in Wisconsin. Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, guys. Good evening to all the callers and listeners. Uh, just a few things. One, um, the Portland, Oregon story, the right to return. Uh, I noticed this. This seems to be a pattern since uh, I know you like patterns. Um, and we probably talked about this before, but this just seems to be a pattern uh, in white supremacy where, where uh, where they will create um, programs that appear to be uh, useful to victims of white supremacy, but uh, the requirements or the criteria to participate in those programs is generally um, generally hard for the victims to meet. Uh, this they you know they're very well aware of the amount of resources that victims have access to and generally they they like to to create bars for these uh i don't want to create bars i'm sorry that probably is a metaphor but uh they uh like to uh set uh, criteria up so that it's very difficult for most victims of white supremacy to meet that criteria um and it gives the appearance that they're trying to do something good, but it, it, it seems to be very deceptive. Also, uh, in terms of Mr. Reed's comments, um, uh, Nicki Minaj may uh, feel that she is to blame, maybe, or had some great deal of influence over these uh, young ladies on Instagram uh, selling whatever, but I think the people who are most to blame are the white supremacists for both pushing uh, these sort of pushing this sort of sex appeal of Nicki Minaj and um, not creating other opportunities for other victims of white supremacy. With that, I'll meet my line. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. Uh, we have other folks that we have not heard from at all have commentary they wanted to share. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, peace to Gus. Peace to all of 
the listeners listening tonight. This is V from Central New York. Oh, man, it's been a, a very um, busy couple of weeks, uh, overtime happening at my job. So I was finally able to catch an episode live tonight, um, which really does me good. Um, on the issue with migrant children, um, I'm watching the development of that very closely because one of the um, one of the um, points in the story that's not really emphasized is that a lot of these parents and a lot of these children are being transferred to what is being termed camp, immigration camps. And I am not certain if we as Black people need to be concerned that what is now being done um, to immigrants may not someday shortly be done to us. I am reminded of um, uh, the ancestor, uh, Dr. Welsing, who said on her last or in her last appearance on this show, which I've listened to probably three dozen times now, um, that she had concluded fascism is just racism. And I think the word she used was organized. Gus, please correct me if I'm wrong. But she made that connection that fascism and racism are very much linked. And we already see that, or we have heard that Donald Trump um, has threatened to send in the military to places like Chicago, where he said violence is out of control and out of hand. Um, the new Blue Lives Matter law that was passed a couple of weeks ago, uh, about a month ago now, is very, very explicit in its treatment of activist work. And of course, we all know that when we are speaking about activists, we, are, we have to be cognizant of the law being utilized disproportionately against Black people who may be working for Black rights and Black dignity, um, what is the phrase Black identity extremists for, but to criminalize those people doing that type of work. I am very much concerned that what we are seeing is just a precursor. Um, I have been reading articles from Europe, and people in Europe are pretty certain that the United States will not recover from Mr. Trump, that what is happening will be only um, magnified and uh, after 2020, that whoever takes the office, which I think is a metaphor, but whoever assumes the office in 2020 will essentially, if it's not Mr. Trump, have to carry out the same policies for at least four years. This is dangerous for Black people. And I don't know if we are confronting that reality. Racism has really turned 
beyond toxic, it's almost metastasized. And we need to be dealing with that. Um, sorry to kind of bring things down, but thank you, Gus. And um, I'll mute my line. Peace. Much obliged. Uh, racism metastasizing metaphor. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, if we've not heard from you at all, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. There was a, a few things that I wanted to speak on. Uh, the first one was, I think, from the, the clip with uh, Mr. Fuller. He he mentioned about, uh, I guess, going on these platforms and, like, when you're asked to speak about what's another, what another uh, victim has stated um, in the news or something like that, and he mentioned uh, Phil Donahue, and I, I think he is very skilled with interviewing black people. I know Dr. Wilson has been on the program, uh, Kelly Muhammad, Minister Farrakhan. Uh, he, he is very skilled at um, utilizing his uh, show, his old show, to get uh, black people, I guess, uh, to respond to certain comments they made and taking it out of context, running certain quotes on, uh, I guess, uh, teleprompter, projector, whatever. Uh, so I'm glad he mentioned that that person's name. Uh, and as far as the, I guess the the non-white children being separated from their, uh, I guess, parents or attempted parents, like the system is just is worldwide. And I and I, I've been thinking about uh, this term, like how non-white people aren't mistreated the same way. Like not necessarily treated, but I think we're mistreated differently because um, you have like all of these different group names, and we just aren't like terrorized the same way. And we don't necessarily we're not in proximity with one another. So, like people mentioned before, we have black people definitely get, I would say, like a great deal of the mistreatment of uh, targeted by race soldiers, um, stereotypes, um, toxic media portrayals, a lot of things like that. Uh, and it could definitely make you want to focus on the group the group title that you are pretty much uh, born with. And because like, like, I don't really know what another type of non-white person is going through in the system of white supremacy. So I, I think we should be mindful about that because that's one of the ways I think they strengthen their system is they can confuse a lot of the victims in different ways. And one last thing I wanted to mention is it was a metaphor in a term. The term that was used was uh, alien families. It was like, I think, did anybody hear that term? Alien families. And then I think the word alienated was used. So that like those two words can a lot of times be used to describe a non-white person. And the metaphor was used uh, painting a picture 
I think, to describe a, a white person or something, another one of those color metaphors. And that's the only thing I have to share right now. And thanks for allowing me to speak. <coughs> Excuse me. Much obliged, uh, our caller in Florida. Uh, other folks that we have missed completely, if you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, uh, Gus, and greetings, everyone. Uh, I'll speak, uh, try to speak directly to the, uh, I think was a question about the the latest quote-unquote immigration issue. Uh, uh, Non-white people, uh, apparently, due to the global system of racist white supremacy, don't have a effective countering force to uh, solve the problem uh, of racism and white supremacy as of yet. Uh, I believe the day is what, uh, June the, June the uh, uh, 23rd, uh, somewhere around 11.31 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. There is no countering force that uh, non-white people can utilize to help themselves or any other non-white people, unless I've been misinformed about it. Uh, uh, This week, uh, well, I'll say this morning, uh, got up and I think I uh, participated in what I think is the most one of the most fundamental forms of self-respect uh, that a non-white black person can do. Uh, I think I've heard uh, our grandsister, Dr. Francis Wilson, mention it. It's pick up trash around the area where you are allowed to stay. And uh, I participated in that with other uh, non-white black neighbors. Although we have neighbors in the area whose primary language is Spanish, they never participate in that process. That also has something to do with the the question that was presented. Uh, As a non-white black person can no longer stay in the area or move out of the area, it it is replaced with a... uh, either a non-white or a white person whose primary language is Spanish. Uh, they do not never participate in any constructive uh, uh, projects that, uh, that's in, that uh, the residents uh, do, such as picking up, you know, clean up, that sort of thing at all. And as I mentioned before, there's no non-white army to go around the world and, and assist other non-white people. Uh, also, uh, last but not least, uh, the DCS mentoring program uh, went on a field trip uh, and visited uh, the courthouse to see how, uh, 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 I've started to say justice, but. That that would definitely be the wrong thing to say. Uh, to see how court proceedings are uh, carried out, uh, I think that's. I didn't go because I'm I'm on duty uh, at my uh, 
mother's place of residence, assisting her as one one fifth of her children. Uh, so that's what I have been doing uh, just about every day that I possibly could uh, do that. And that's all I have to say. Uh, thanks for everybody for listening. Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Best wishes to your mother. Uh, and Dr. Welsing would say that often. Uh, every black person should have a Ph.D. in sweeping exercise and black self-respect uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all are there people that we missed completely that have a hand up can i be heard yes sir peace peace uh brother gus and retired firefighter and all the callers um I just had a couple of uh, questions, basically, um, with the children at the border, right? The the children that's being kidnapped and or they 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 say they're housing them in like dog kennels and it's horrible. But why are we not addressing the melanated children? That in this in this land in this even in D.C. the numerous people babies that's being kidnapped and um, no nobody can find them they're just being taken and only God knows what their fate is and um, another thing I wanted to address was with the brother thing the brother. You know, with that term, brother, man, like, I got, like, you know, I got brother uh, Thomas from New York. I got brother, I got brother, they my brothers, even if, if we're not biological, but emotional, um, spiritual, you know, all these things can come together, and, and why is it that that I can't, that can't be my brother. I, I'm, I'm just wondering. Oh, that's a question uh, for me. If that is what you have concluded, I don't know what you mean when you say brother, but if that's what you have concluded, that you do feel a sense of brotherhood with certain individuals, Thomas in New York or whomever else it is, then follow your code we have not had the same experience. Yeah. So my code, yeah. all I yeah. said was that I'm not going to use the term. And I think if you rewind, I did not tell anyone you shouldn't use the term. All I said was that please do not call me brother, which is exactly what you did when you began your commentary, sir. But, but I mean, if that's how I feel, I mean, well, see I that, feel, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's, it's totally been, different. Been, Hang on a second, sir. It's totally different when it's, yeah you addressing me because now we're talking about how are you going to address me and i think the code that mr fuller promotes the code that i promote address people particularly if you're talking to a non-white person you should address that person the way that they have asked to be addressed and particularly if okay. someone has and I, made and I, yeah, it, hang on yeah, one second yeah. and particularly if someone has made explicit wishes about what they want to be called and or what they do not want to be called in my view that's being discourteous to just say, well, I'm going to disregard that and I'm going to call you what I want to call you based on what I feel. That is being very discourteous in my view and could no. probably com uh, promote no. conflict in a lot of settings. 
Now, Gus, now, Gus, that was totally logical, and I totally understand. However, what if I truly feel? If I have really true feelings that, I mean, because me and you, we've been, I mean, I've been rocking with you for years. And if I really, truly do feel you are my brother, so you telling me because I feel that way, don't call me your brother because you don't feel that way. And, and, and if that's what you're saying, I totally understand that. But I truly do feel that way. Like, you, you my brother. I mean, I really feel that way. So, I mean, does that, how, how, why does that offend you? That does not offend me. <laughs> All I said, I really you can. I truly feel like you my brother, man. I mean that. And, and, I mean, and I, what you said was totally logical. Okay. Because, I mean, yeah, you was like, look, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, if I really, truly feel that way, dang, I mean, you know. You can feel that I mean, way. That's, really... That is no problem. You can feel that way, and it might be completely sincere. It's nothing incorrect about that. I don't have a problem with that at all. That's fine. My only request is that people not call me brother. You can go right on feeling that way and be sincere about it, but just I will not say it out loud when I speak to Gus, but I still feel that, yes, no problem at all. Okay. All right. That's a bet, brother. You my brother. I don't care if you don't. If you ain't my brother, dang it, you my brother. Dang it, and I mean that. But and 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 along, I mean, with the children, man, with these children, they talking about the the Mexican border with these children, and they treating them bad. They got them in dog cages, horrible, horrible. But they not talking about thousands of melanated people, children that's missing, even in D.C. alone. And I mean, I mean, why, would, man? I'm gonna mute my line, brother. I love you. And I'm, I'm, I ain't mean to call you brother. Peace, Gus. I love you, brother. Keep, uh, I mean, I love you, Gus. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Peace. Much obliged. Much obliged. Many people have a difficult time there. Dozens and dozens of black people that I've asked them nicely and within five seconds. Now, look here, brother Gus. Happens all the time. Uh, I will leave that second question for other folks to answer since I answered the uh, his other question uh, about the word brother. So other callers can respond to that question about the uh, children, even though I would say when he's saying uh, we, I'm not sure who he's talking about specifically, are not addressing black children, melanated children in the U.S., not talking to Brother Gus because Brother Gu- brother Gus, I can't even say it correctly. It's so incorrect. Uh, wrote specifically about black missing children in Washington, D.C. for Atlanta Black Star 2017. You can Google me on that one. Uh, other folks that we have missed completely. Anybody we missed completely? Did we get everybody? We got everybody? Please do not wait till the last minute if you, you know, are on the line and you think you have. Com- oh, wait a minute. Uh, caller at 4717. Did you have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Can I be heard? Greetings, Gus, and all the callers and listeners. Um, I just wanted to chime in tonight to make a comment about, you know, on one part of my heart, I do feel for these um, Hispanic children that are suffering in these um, detention camps. And I even 
was watching a video probably maybe two days ago where they would not even let these officials in when they had official clearance to come in and see how these kids were doing, but they would not let them in. So to me, that tells me those children are being mistreated. And then I read an article today where here the children are being mistreated and placed naked in these cells and starved and beaten. And to me, yes, that does hurt my heart. But then I think about just last year, we had so many articles, so many news clips, not so much media coverage, but so much information about all these melanated children coming up missing. And to me, no one, no one raised an eyebrow. No one was up in arms about it at all. But once these undocumented children come along and they are missing, then everyone has something to say. But what about our own children? You know, I understand we should have compassion for those children, but what about our own? Why can't we sweep our own front doors before we go to try to sweep someone else's? Because to me, just personally, I saw today, I had to tell my husband, go and check on those kids. Because I saw one of my melanated children that used to ride on my school bus. I see them coming from one of my neighbor's houses, which I know he's, for one, he's a non black white person. He's, a, he's a, a known suspected white supremacist. But I see one of my own children that look like me coming from his house. When I see people all the time coming, but when I see one of mine coming from his house, I tell my husband, yo, you have to go and check him. Call those kids over here right now. See why he was over there. What's really going on? Because we have to always protect our own. And we have gotten so far removed from that because our children are being killed every single day in these streets. And we are not standing up. But now, and I understand, we should have compassion for these children that are being taken into these detention centers. But why don't we have that same compassion for our children that are being kidnapped, murdered, raped, abused, taken every single day. We should have that same compassion. As much as we want to stand up for those children, we should want to stand up for our, out for our own. And we should want to make sure those children are just as safe as any other child. Why we weren't... It's, it's, it's really hard for me because I don't want to not have compassion. But I understand how, I understand the situation we're going through. And I never saw any of those people, any Hispanic people, Mexic, whatever you want to call them, Hispanic, Mexican, Spanish-speaking people. I never saw any of them speak up for us. And so to me, I don't understand why we are so up in arms. Speaking up for them, which I understand that we should have compassion because children are children. You can never choose your parents. And I understand what Dr. Wilson said. You have to understand as two grown adults, when you get together, you, have, you are responsible for that offspring. I do understand that, but 
these children, but our children also, our children, why aren't we as compassionate for our children as we are for those children? And thank you, Gus, so much for taking my call. I will go ahead and mute my line. Thanks to the listeners, everybody. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, just, again, I'm, I'm pointing it out. And something that I've noted when we get more emotional, more passionate sometimes about particular topics or aspects of white supremacy, racism, sometimes uh, we invoke more metaphors, lots of metaphors uh, in the response. Sweep our front door, touched my heart, uh, why don't we stand up, up in arms, lots, lots of metaphors. And I Yeah, just, I'm, I'm sorry about that, Gus, yeah. No apology necessary, just it is very important that, at least in my view, that we are mindful when we talk about racism because words are extraordinarily important. When you were talking about his Spanish people and you were uh, saying, I'm paraphrasing, whatever you want to call them, Spanish speaking people, Hispanic, that in my view is, is not precise enough because you do have individuals that are classified as white who do speak Spanish. That's their primary language, as they say, but they're classified as white. And you also have individuals who are classified as non-white who speak Spanish. So it is very important uh, that, you know, we try to be as precise as we can uh, with terms. Uh, I just making a, a statement from my understanding of white supremacy, racism, black people, no non-white people in the known universe have demonstrated the ability to successfully protect themselves, their children, Anything, anyone from racist man, racist woman, racist child, either that is true or it's not. Uh, and to my quick response to your question in terms of why some black people, I, I also, I, something seems incorrect. There are a lot of general statements about we as though all black people are functioning in the same manner uh, on a particular subject matter when I don't think that can be the case. I don't think all black people are really focused on the immigrant situation right now and directing, you know, a substantial amount of their time and energy to that situation. I don't think that is the case. Uh, but my view is that in the system of white supremacy, things that whites put more attention on, we pay more attention to. Whites didn't put as much attention on missing black children in D.C. or anywhere else. You didn't have as many black people focused on that. Things that white people say are important, that is the system, that is the power in the system of racism, white supremacy, things that they say are important. That's what we think is important. This week, they said that was important. In my view, no surprise that you would have a substantial number of people who would say, yes, that's important. And just the system of white supremacy, black babies cost less. That is a sound clip on this broadcast for a reason. That is the anti-blackness people worldwide, white, black, everybody, black get back as the grandcester used to say regularly that is the operations of anti-blackness not having black self-respect worldwide. Uh, anyone that we missed completely? Call her at 360. Absolutely, absolutely, Dave. Uh, hang, uh, absolutely, uh, Dave. hang tight, ma'am. Okay. Hang tight, ma'am. Hang tight. Anybody that we missed completely, the caller at 3637, uh, did we hear from you at all? I'm not heard from me. Thank you so much, Paul. I just have a quick question. Uh, Gus, what is the name of that African person that had those um, all of that footage up that white people doing really degrading stuff with sex with animals or cars or other human beings? What was his name? Cynical African? Yes. 
Thank you, Gus. CynicalAfrican.com, CynicalAfrican.com, longtime uh, listener, supporter. Uh, caller at 3013. Did you have commentary? 3013? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, first time caller. I just wanted to get a couple things in. Woo-hoo. In regards to, <laughs> yeah, no problem. In regards to the Oregon, I didn't exactly hear the, I called in late. I didn't get to hear any of the clips, but I'm just reminded of the black exclusion laws in Oregon. That's just what came to mind. <clears throat> I also have a recommendation for a guest. I came across a book titled A Cure for White Fragility. <laughs> it's called It's called Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, written by someone I suspect is a racist, Robin D'Angelo. Maybe you can get them on the program. Maybe maybe it would be constructive. I also and I also was wondering, Gus, you mentioned the half that has never been told earlier, and there was I listened to the audio book that you had that you had done on the program about it, and one quote that stuck to mind to me was, "I don't have it written down exactly as I should, but the quote was along the lines of, "Historians often confuse manhood and resistance to slavery." Do you recall that quote? <laughs> uh, I will be truthful. No, but I am pulling up the book because this is when I have an ebook. So if you give me a moment and I can go back and find the sentence, I will see if I can give you a second uh, truthful answer. Appreciate that. And I've I heard you mention before that you don't you're not you're not in dealing with the shirts that you say are for sale. I'm not exactly interested in buying one, but I do have a recommendation about the shirt. Um. You say it says you say that it says please treat me like a white person. Um, I, I I agree that that's good and all, but I think at the on the back of the shirt or something like that you should put or else because you know in my experience with white people it's not your word doesn't mean much it's action so and it's still just a shirt but I think having or else and having like a nuclear. <laughs> like a atom bomb mushroom cloud on the back. It also reminded me of Francis Chris Walsing's quote about self-respect being along the lines of stronger than a nuclear weapon. Just a recommendation. And I also had another question for you, Gus, if you could answer. I was wondering how significant do you think concepts such as brainwashing, hypnotism, black magic, voodoo, and like, wizardry and witch witchcraft how how big of an impact within context of white supremacy do you think concepts like that like those have uh i'm not sure thus far i have not seen uh i've not seen evidence that that's going to be uh enough to solve the problem on its own uh from what i've seen thus far maybe i have not seen uh it demonstrated sufficiently could just be that i'm ignorant uh, about those particular concepts those are concepts that seem to vary depending on who you are talking to and how they practice how they interpret what those you know ideas are supposed to mean but thus far i have not seen any evidence that those concepts practices are going to solve the problem of racism white supremacy or it wouldn't be here. Uh, again, I could just be ignorant. Maybe we need to do more of that. Uh, the sentence, which I did find, uh, the need to disprove the symbolic emasculation that slavery represented 
has impelled some portion of black cultural creativity for all the years since, and historians have repeatedly confused manhood and resistance when they have written about slavery. Full sentence, which I did have highlighted uh, this whole uh, section here where he's talking about it actually would rather get a moment because I highlighted this is at the end like this is that sentence that he's talking about is at the end of a whole paragraph that I highlighted and even the end of the previous paragraph so everything that I highlighted connected to that that sentence at the end of it is uh, free like Robert Potter free like 20,000 men who came to watch Andrew Jackson become the president or free as those men imagined themselves to be. White men, South and North, viewed the alleged non-resistance of enslaved men as evidence that they were not heroes, proof that they were not really men. They mocked black men as cringing sambos in jokes, literature, and minstrel shows, the need to disprove the symbolic emasculation that slavery represented has impelled some portion of black cultural creativity for all the years since, and historians, he should have said white historians, have repeatedly confused manhood, in quotes, and resistance, in quotes, when they have written about slavery. Now, what was yeah, the question? I found, that, I found that to be very profound. I did. I highlighted the whole paragraph. I did, too. And apparently we must have we talked about you said you listened to the book club. Did we talk about this section? I can't believe I would have highlighted all that and not mentioned that when we got to the discussion section. Did I say something about that? You did. You asked you asked the callers at the time how they felt about it. And it was an archive that I was listening to. So when you had asked that question to the callers, not many people had said anything about it. So it, you know, inspired me to call now oh. and ask about it, you know, in the future. The book club. The this is a really good book. Now, Edward Baptist. I quoted him before. Same program. He's been quoted many times. I think it's the third time. Uh, I read that sentence about uh, agency. African American women having uh, the ability to get some leverage uh, with you know being in a tragic arrangement. He is a race soldier. He did say many or suspected race soldier. He there are many statements throughout the book that you know this is a white man writing the book. That said, there are a lot of really constructive details, information about the mechanics of white supremacy. Right? He was talking in detail about whites swapping torture techniques to better control their negras. Uh, yeah. Did I answer your question, sir, about this sentence? Yes, you did. Thank you again. And just before I go, I wanted to mention, give me one moment. Like I said, I'm a bit disorganized. Organization is important. Kwame Kyo or uh, Kwame Ture, organize, organize, organize. He would say that all the time. Very important. Part of being codified, being organized. Uh, we have three. Yes, I just wanted to... Oh, yes. Go ahead, oh. sir. I just wanted to respond to the woman, the previous woman, her, her question about why we're more, why we at least seem to be more worried about, you know, possibly non-white or white immigrants from Spanish-speaking countries in the West. Um, I find that the term that you use on the program, victim of white supremacy, I do think it is, you know, it is credible. But in regards to people who are classified as black, I think a stronger word would be sacrifice. And I know that sounds repugnant because you would like to think that you're a sacrifice for something good. But I found that a lot of so-called black people are sacrifices 
for white supremacy. And the ritual which they are sacrificed in is racism. Hmm. I have to uh, think about it. Victim invokes a lot of things. Uh, the crime of white supremacy, racism, that's an important one. But certainly VGQ, uh, folks, you know, apply, use the terms that you think best convey what's happening and we'll get this problem solved immediately. Uh, briefly, uh, Thomas in New York, I think it asked not that long ago, what if the shirt said, uh, treat me like a white person or else? What do I think the response would be? And I said, I think if you wore that shirt every day for a week, that would be at least one brawl per week or one confrontation. I think uh, whites, at least my understanding of what it means to be white, they would want uh, proof right now. Uh, treat you correctly or else. What exactly are you going to do, Nigra? And I don't think, I know Gusty Renegade, I do not have an army uh, to combat the forces of racist man, racist woman, racist child. So I could not enforce the what else. I don't think I'd be able to wear that shirt safely uh, at all to yoga class or anyplace else. Uh, did we miss anybody? Anybody have a hand up that we missed totally? The caller at 7656, did we miss you completely? No, I um, talked before, but if you have a minute. Some things I forgot to say really quickly, but I can wait. <laughs> you can be our, our final caller for the day. I think I did nab uh, everybody. Uh, yeah, we got everybody. You can be our final voice for the day. Okay. Very quickly, um, there was a going to be a play about Pearl, Pearl Bailey in Utah, but the white person who was running it said something insensitive. Now that's gone. So it's important for us to tell our own stories in our own way. Black, excuse me, Pearl Bailey was an important musician, I believe, in the 50, 40s or 50s. Um, they did detain someone from Canada who was coming to America. I don't know if you played that part because I came in a little late. And I thought, oh, they finally got a white person. But then they had a picture of her. She looks more like Josephine Baker than Marine Le Pen. So that was that. And last but not least, the woman who's about, you know, not feeling bad about immigrants. You can feel bad and have all that compassion. They, white people do it all the time when they hear about our stories. Oh, that's horrible. And they keep living out their lives and doing what's important to them. So you can go, I feel bad. I do, personally, I feel bad, but I have to keep living my life. And one time I hate is black girl magic. If I was, a, as a black woman or a black girl, if I had all this magic, if we have all this magic, why haven't we ended racism? Logic, logic. I, I do not support the use of the term black girl magic either. Uh, we want to get away from fantasy. Uh, again, if we had all this magic, our problem would be solved. We want to get away from fantasy and deal with logic, logic, black girl logic and black boy logic, I think will move us to solving problems. With that, we will call it a broadcast. Uh, it was confirmed. I do have to teach a yoga class to graduate from yoga teacher training. So any folks, if you're in the Seattle area or want to visit lovely Seattle, the gay pride festivities will be all done. So you won't have to deal with any of that if you come in August. Uh, but if you think you'll be in the Seattle area, it should be like August 19th. I have like a firm date, confirmed date as we uh, move forward in training. But it should be 
like August 19th, August 20th. Uh, the class would be free, so if you're in the Seattle area or think you might be in the Seattle area that time, if you have your Counter Racist t-shirt or just want to show up in whatever your yoga attire is and take a class so I don't have to have a room full of whites, race soldiers uh, for my first class, that would be grand. Even better if you can wear your Counter Racist t-shirt. Uh, we will give more details as we proceed. Uh, with that, if you're out this weekend, enjoying the solstice, festivity, summer, all that great. Enjoy, have fun, call everybody brother and sister. Uh, but you should be codified. Uh, race soldiers, they do not take a pause just because the sun is shining. It's summertime. Uh, if anything, sometimes they intensify violence, terrorism against black people. Be codified. With that understanding, I know Grandsister Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she would strongly encourage sobriety would be best at all times under, under the system of white supremacy. Uh, we can be out and have fun, but you do not want to be intoxicated where our brain computers are not working efficiently. We can't make the best decisions and race soldiers can take easy advantage of us and further abuse and terrorize us that's in the half has never been told as well they talked about explicitly multiple times uh race soldiers that was one of their tactics to make the niggers easier to control we give them a little bit of alcohol and then they can't think as well they can't move as well and it'll be much easier for a small number of whites to control a large number of black people have them intoxicated in addition, if we're going to be out and about in a vehicle, we want to be sober and buckled up every time, driver and passenger. Uh, let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, slave catchers, as Mr. Reed says. With that, it has been time, Creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim, your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.